You are listening to a special edition of Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. This is our 2019 All Media Overload. Well, <laughs> you're listening to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. This is the podcast where we used to talk about every Bruce Springsteen song in alphabetical order one by one. We, but then we, we talked about them all. We did. So we wrapped up season one of that little journey, that three plus year journey uh, <laughs> earlier. And so um, season one, it's three years, yeah, 350 season, episodes. Season one was three years long. And then uh, we'll, we'll get into season two in January. But for right now, we're doing what may actually be our favorite thing that we do every year, which is the 2019 all media or the, the end of year all media overload. JB, you were saying at the end of our last episode that you, you prepare all year for this. Is that, yes. is that true? Oh yeah. I keep detailed notes of everything that I, I enjoy or sort of have, feel like it's important. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I like to give people, um, I was talking to somebody today and they were like, Oh, I have a kid. So I don't really get to read that much. And, uh, and so I was like, Oh man, I know how that is, but I still try to read a book every week, which I know was like a very privileged position to be in. But I thought, Oh, the first book I read this year was this book of tiny memoirs. It's like a 52 page book and it's by this poet that I love. And so I was like, this is great. Why don't, you know what? I'm going to order you a copy, you know, like I can give you, I can give you a couple weeks of joy for $7. And, <laughs> and so I, that's why I love doing it. You know, yeah. if I, if I really love a book, I'll, I'll buy like a couple copies at the, you know, used bookstore down the street and give them away. That's a good thing. Just because, do. yeah, it's just like, it's the easiest gift you can give somebody, you know, just go up to somebody and saying, Hey, do you have Spotify? You would really like this record. Yeah, man. Well, and We'll get to it when we get to it, but the the albums that you are going to recommend later in the show are really. I, I'm really glad the the list you you sent me before we started is stellar. I'm really excited about it. You know, the thing about the music is a lot of these songs or these records came out uh, pretty early in the year that we're going to talk about. Yeah, and uh, or at least not in the last three or so months. And so um, I almost kind of forgot. And today. Uh, before we recorded, I had I just had so much fun going back and listening to him again. Andy, yours? Could you put a few on there that were like, you know, next on my list, yeah. uh, or that I totally forgotten came out this year? And uh, I totally missed. Uh, no, I didn't miss it, but I totally forgot about that Joseph record that we may not even talk about today. But ah, oh, such a good record. I really like Joseph the band. Oh well, yeah, we're, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but um, but yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about as as quickly and succinctly as we can for the next three or so hours. We're going to talk about movies, our favorite movies, TV shows, albums, books, podcasts, and comics that we read or consumed in one way or another this year. And right, so, read, read, watch, and listen. Yeah. So, what we're, we are, we will, uh, we're going to put timestamps in the show notes. So, if you want to skip around and you don't want to hear us talk about things that you're not interested in or that you're like saving, you don't want to hear our thoughts on, I will say we're going to try our best to avoid spoilers, especially for movies that are, yeah, movies that are still out in theaters or, uh, TV shows that maybe have just recently finished their run. And so we will, we'll do our best not to spoil anything beyond uh, what, what you will already sort of know about from just trailers or, you know, basic people talking. So if you're worried about us spoiling like the end of parasite or knives out, don't worry about that. We're, we're not going to do that. But um, that said, we are going to talk about some stuff. We're going to just sort of share with you guys the stuff that we enjoyed. Yeah. So JB, are you, are, do you have a drink in your hand? Are you ready to go? Yeah, man, I'm buckled up. 
Okay, so I've <laughs> cleared my schedule for the evening, so we're yes. uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into this. So let's start off with movies. Oh, I'm gonna do a timer here so we can make sure and keep keep ourselves to you know a reasonable length of time. Oh yeah, uh, I almost forgot. Like speed chess. Yeah. So we're gonna start off with movies, and let's start with the one movie that both of us had on our initial list, which was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Woo. <laughs> Enough said. Film. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is the the new Next film. Movie. <laughs> this this is my favorite movie from this year. This is my. I, in fact, I would I would go so far as to say this is my favorite movie from the last couple of years. This is the the newest Quentin Tarantino movie, and stars Brad Pitt, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, or Robbie, however she she pronounces her last name. Um, and uh, this was. I I mean I I don't even know where to start. I saw this movie three times in the theater, and this is oh wow yeah, and the, the, and it's three hours long, and very little happened. Like not much of a spoiler, but this this is mostly a hangout movie. So you're really sort of committing to just kind of spending the day with with these characters, and uh, yeah, I chew a ton of plot for the payoff. Yeah, and I love this movie so much. I love it, but every time I saw it, I loved it just a little bit more. And so, J- JB, what what did you love about this movie? Why is this movie on your list? All right. Well, first of all, I went into it. I don't read about Tarantino movies before I watch them. I don't want to know anything yes. about them. Because it's just more fun that way. And because a lot of times he takes stuff from pop culture that uh, like that is not – or from, from history that, that didn't happen but gets so close and adjacent to it mm-hmm. that it's it's way more fun to just kind of experience it in that moment than to prepare for it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I guess, like, I'm interested in the stuff he, he makes movies about because our interests align enough that I'm usually, you know, whatever the thing's about, like, I'm, I'm usually pretty cursorily aware of. And that that is true here with the uh, Manson family. Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm obsessed with the whole thing. Uh, you've talked about, um, you have to remember this, the podcast about Hollywood. You must remember On here this. a bunch. Yeah, you must remember this. And they do a huge thing on the family, uh, the Manson family. And so – but I didn't know that that was part of this movie. And so you got this kind of buddy comedy that's really great. And then you just get these little clips that if you know anything about the Manson family, you start to connect the dots before you ever see any real service to Charles Manson. And uh, the moment that that Pitt's character shows up at Spawn Ranch, I was just like, oh, yeah. That's one of oh, the yeah. best scenes of any movie I've seen in years. Oh my gosh! So and good. I was blown away that Quentin Tarantino got Lena Lena Dunham to play such a small weird role. You know what I mean? Yes. I was. That was one of the most impressive parts of the whole movie. Well, all you have to say is you have one scene, but all your lines are with Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Like, wh- who's going to say no to, the, to that to that in- invitation? Yeah. And Brad Pitt. Uh, look, Brad Pitt's one of my favorite actors. Uh, Brad Pitt acts his ass off in this movie. This is be- I'm gonna go, it makes it- I'm gonna go out on a limb. This is this is my favorite performance of his. Really? Because yes. he makes it look like he's just like it's a. He makes it look like it's just a biopic about him. Like he makes it look like he's just living his life. You know what I mean? You can't see him straining to act. DiCaprio too. He turns in a great performance, but it's not like something you wouldn't expect from him. Brad Pitt's is just so casual and so good. He feels so comfortable in that role. He is. I mean, I yeah. We could have a whole conversation about why this movie, why, why he deserves the best supporting actor nomination for this movie. And he's. It reminds me of when I saw Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born, and my first thought was, "Do we need to check on Bradley?" <laughs> yeah, it's like that. It's really, really good. 
Yeah, it's and, and th- this movie. I've heard a lot of people talking about how like th- this movie proves to you why exactly Brad Pitt is a movie star, just because he sort of it, it looks like he just effortlessly sort of glides through the whole thing and just yeah. is cool and compelling no matter what he's doing. And he he is in all the best scenes, and he's definitely the best part of what is I think a really good movie. And that that scene you talked about at Spawn Ranch, like he's Tarantino is one of the best in the world at establishing tension and just holding it for as long as possible because all it is is a guy walking into a trailer house or, or a, a house and you feel like a bomb's about to go off. You know what I mean? And it's, mm. it, 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 he just does such a good job of building tension in, in places where you don't necessarily need to build tension or like it wouldn't be your first thought to build tension. And, and he does it really well. And it's, it, I, I, this is not my, okay. This isn't my top five favorite Quentin Tarantino movies for sure. I, I really, really love this movie. And oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and we I mean really we could talk about it for forever. But I will say, like, I, I went to see it the first time and it was not what I expected it to be. But I still enjoyed it. But then I went and I re-listened to Karina Longworth's the You Must Remember Lit This podcast uh series on the Manson family, and then I went back and saw the movie again. And knowing as much as possible about the Manson family deeply enhances your experience of this movie. It, it it's really a it's movie true. That, that kind of rewards you for doing your homework before you go. Here's one thing I loved about it is I was so surprised by the actors that played the Manson family people just because every time you see sort of like reenactment to that kind of stuff or like specials on them, they're portrayed as these sort of like full, um, fully embodied adults. Um, and they were kids, man. Yeah. Well, and, and even the ca- how he cast the movie is was really smart because almost everyone who plays a speaking role in, in the Manson family are either child actors or the children of movie stars. Yeah, because the whole thing is about like, uh, like moving like generational transference and you know how Hollywood changed in 1969, and so like by symbolically sort of casting all these like child actors and children of celebrities, one of the things that Tarantino is sort of saying is like this this is a thing that we've seen over and over again. Like he, he how Quentin Tarantino staffs his movies or casts his movies is so interesting. Like I, I just recently realized that in the movie Inglorious Bastards, every one of the, the, the people who play the Inglorious Bastards are Jewish screenwriters in real life. Yeah. So just, I mean, unbelievable. I, he's, I, I, I realize like there's some problematic stuff about who Quentin Tarantino is, especially with his association with Harvey Weinstein, but my Lord, he can make a good movie. Yes. So, I mean, well, uh, and I will say that this movie, like for two hours and 40 minutes of it, I was like, this has been great, but what's ha- what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Man, and the whole and thing it, totally pays off. The last 30 minutes makes the entire movie off. worth it. Yeah. And um, yeah, every every single thing that you feast your eyes on for the whole two hours and 40 minutes, like, plays a role in the last 10 minutes of the movie. It's just, it's really good. Uh, well, and, and I love, I love just sort of like being every, in that world. Lug nut on every tire shows back up, you know, like. <laughs> I mean, literally. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we could do. I could spend an hour sitting here just talking to you about all the things that are great about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I won't, but I could. Now, um, JB, did you see Avengers Endgame? I did. I'm assuming because you, you put Spider Man Far From Home on your list. I thought like it would be weird if you didn't see Avengers Endgame. I did see it. Um, did you? Oh yeah, I saw it twice. So here, here's what I have to say about Endgame. Aside from everything, uh, as good as it was. Um, it really made me excited for Star Wars, just seeing <laughs> how like a behemoth of an IP could produce something so big and wrap it up so successfully. I you mean, know? yes, absolutely. I mean, imagine the foresight and the creative patience you have to have 
to build this massive universe and like overarching story with 22 movies inside of it and to never fully drop the ball once and then to pay it off so satisfyingly. It's amazing. I mean, quite frankly, cinematically, like I realize like there's lots of discussion now about like whether or not Marvel movies are are real movies because Martin Scorsese said so or whatever. But like, even if you don't, if you can't value it as like quote unquote high cinema, the, the achievement of having done this, or like from beginning with Iron Man one all the way up to Avengers Endgame, is astounding. Like no one has ever right. been able to do anything like this. Yeah, and to think that like I started working on websites when this whole thing started, and those websites still aren't finished today. You know, it's like wow, <laughs> a lot of people did some really cool stuff in the time it took me to make this website. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I heard I can't remember where I heard it said, but I heard some film critics say that he, he, he was like, I don't know if I agree with this, but you can make the argument that Iron Man one is the most important movie of the 21st century specifically because if Iron Man one had failed, none of these MCU movies would exist today. You know? Well, and look that they were Marvel put a documentary out in the special packaging with the, you know, the DVD release about, um, basically making that point for viewers. Mm. Like they do a documentary about how it all came together and they basically are very upfront in saying that. And they also don't let you forget that Iron Man, nothing existed like that. And they took a huge swing with the casting, a huge swing yes, they did. with the casting. And they, no one has ever been more perfectly cast than the cast of Iron Man one. I've been reading Tony Stark and Iron Man comics since before that movie came out. And they've existed for decades before I even picked them up. And Iron Man has always looked exactly like, uh, <laughs> Exactly like uh, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> well, it's it's crazy how perfect because I've I've heard someone I, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's a rumor that is that Tom Cruise was originally the one who was first considered for the role of Tony Stark, and oh my god, I'm so glad he did not take that job. Tony Stark supposed to be a guy who should have everything he wants come true, and yet stymies himself at every turn. And here's Robert Downey Jr., the living embodiment of that, who oh also actually had the same facial hair as Tony Stark for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, and he was like fresh out of jail. He was he. It was hard for people to to hire him. He was a big gamble when when they decided to cast him. And man, yeah. I can't I can't think of a better decision that has paid off more than the decision to make Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark. And and they they carried it all the way through. They gave him, in my opinion, a really satisfying ending. And, uh, man, I, I loved... Endgame is three hours long. I enjoyed every frame of it. There, there, I was never once bored or... And I, I just enjoyed it. It was like... If, when I go to the movies, one of the things I want most is I want to be engaged and entertained. And, I, and they totally never let me down. Not for a single second of Endgame. I loved it. Yeah, man. I watched it and then immediately watched the... DVDs features and the documentary. Ah, so good. Uh, well, then the immediate follow up of Avengers Endgame was one that you put on your list, which was Spider Man Far From Home. Yeah. So here's the deal with this: these are all fun and stuff, and it, I don't know. This is like the best movie I saw by any means, but it, it it was really well executed in a way that really impressed me that I, that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching it and a little bit confused by the team up because I'm a pretty avid Spider Man comic book reader. And uh, but I was also just enjoying all the effects and fights and having a really good time by myself in the movie theater. There's no one in my theater with me. So it was great. <laughs> uh, and then I'm I'm like watching it kind of wrap up and I'm like, wait a second. This movie's two hours and it's only been an hour. <laughs> oh, are you talking and about the, Jake, the Gyllenhaal? Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal delivers a TED talk in a pub that just <laughs> holy cow to really just flip that whole thing over was incredible. Can I, that ha- movie was just like a really fun Marvel team up that turned into like a serious heavy movie. 
Hot take. This is Jake Gyllenhaal's best performance. Really? <laughs> he did an incredible job. It's so good. <laughs> He's yeah. so great. Well, I, I, I've heard a rumor. Just like the that, pub scene, man. The pub scene is like Academy Award good. <laughs> yes. Well, and I've heard people talk about how when he's being like overbearing on the people who work for him. I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but there there's scenes where he's sort of like like yelling at people who work for him. And from what I'm told, like he modeled that part of his performance after when he worked with David Fincher on the movie Zodiac. <laughs> Because <laughs> apparently he really hated working with Fincher. So basically all those scenes where he's like 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 yelling and screaming at like the wardrobe person or the tech person, like apparently that's like how he sees David Fincher. But yeah, I thought Spider-Man Far From Home was a really satisfying sort of like coda to the entire Avengers like story. Whatever whatever the story was that was being told from Iron Man all the way up to Endgame. I thought Far From Home was a really nice way of sort of sealing like closing that chapter. Also, I was really relieved when Sony announced that it was it was in fact going to continue making Spider-Man movies inside the MCU because for a little while there were some money disputes and Sony was like we're just going to take our Spider-Man and go home and uh, I was really bummed out about that I really really love Tom Holland as, as Peter Parker in inside this this current iteration of the MCU now all right so seen... next you got Knives Out I haven't seen it I was going to ask have you seen Knives Out so so you, no. no you've not okay Knives Out is the new uh, it, it's a murder mystery whodunit Agatha Christie style movie by Ryan Johnson, who most famously directed the the most recent Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. He also directed, wrote and directed Looper and that Brick. And will not be the most recent Star Wars movie when this comes out. Oh, that's true. Wow. Yeah, because we because we're going to go see Star Wars tomorrow night. I was going to ask, are, are you are you headed for the the, the early show tomorrow? Uh, babysitter is is on the books, nice. and I'm ready to go. Well. I, if there's anything I like more than Star Wars, it's Ryan Johnson. So I, Knives Out is so good. I don't even, I, I'm I'm going to try and avoid talking about anything in detail because it's still in theaters and I really hope people go see it. But um, I will say that Daniel Craig as sort of the, the Ryan Johnson universe version of uh, Poirot, like he's, he plays a Southern detective named Benoit Blanc. And I've heard Ryan Johnson say that he, he is fully open to making more stories in the Benoit Blanc universe and like making more murder mysteries, like Agatha Christie style murder, murder mysteries. And I am so here for that. Daniel Craig has never been better in any part in his whole life than he is as Benoit Blanc. And this movie is so freaking great. I've seen it. This is another one that I saw twice. I, I went to see it. I, I saw a week early at a, at a advanced screening at the Alamo near my house. And then the week it came out, my wife and I took took a day after we dropped our kids off at school and we played hooky and we went to see it again. And nice. It, it's better. It's even better the second time because you start noticing because a lot of times in a mystery, like once you sort of are w- once the whole thing is revealed, you start wondering, like, was that all set up or did they cheat? And I'm going to again, not spoiling anything, but I am I am here to testify that if you go watch Knives Out for a second time, you will see that every single piece was already in place before the movie was over. Like they, Ryan Johnson knew exactly what he was doing as he was constructing this. It is amazing. This is, uh, after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is my second favorite movie of the entire year. I love Knives Out. I hope people go see it. I hope they go see it more than once. I want Ryan Johnson to succeed in all things. And I want more of this. I want more. I want more movies that are, is a non-pre-existing IP by a writer director who knows what he's doing and can make really good, engaging movies. So, nice. Yeah. Cannot. Well, recommend I'm excited that. to see it. You should be. It's awesome. So talk about now. We're, this is a major shift, but uh, Knives Out is a lot of fun, even though it's about murder. Marriage Story is not a lot of fun, and it's about divorce. <laughs> so, yeah, it's about divorce. It's not fun at all. No, but it is very so. Good. Uh, yeah, so I just realized a few years ago that there was a 
emo kid named Noah who was out there making movies just for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Noah what was the movie that had? A, yeah, Noah Baumbach. He had. Uh, what is the movie he had with Adam Driver and Ben Stiller in it? Oh, that was uh, When We're Young. Yeah, I watched that and I was like, who is in charge of this? I love that movie. <laughs> and he wrote and directed it and I was just like, wow, what a movie. <laughs> Very good. Very uh, good movie. Yeah, so this wasn't like a life-changing movie, but it's just it's a, this is an example of how uh, crazy love can make us. And I'm going to talk about this later <laughs> in the music thing. It's not really a theme. Uh, I'm not going through any like crazy love stuff. It's just like <laughs> it's, it's just a perfect example of how crazy love can make us. And uh, there's this line that a very stunning Laura Dern delivers. Laura Dern is all out for this movie. She's incredible in this movie. How is Laura Dern in um, every good thing right now, by the way? She, she just shows up everywhere, and it's always she's had good. such a resurgence, and I'm so in for it. I heard someone refer to when it When she as walked the onto the ship of the, of the bridge that's uh, on Star Wars, I was just like, hello, General Dern. <laughs> Reporting for duty. I love Laura Dern. Anyway, uh, she delivers this line, the system rewards bad behavior. And that just broke my heart because – and I think about this all the time um, – is that like there's all these regulations in place that are that are put in place to for like worst case scenario situations, you know, like I have a friend who owns a small business and he's frustrated by a lot of the regulations. And I have to remind him that like not every person who owns a small business like treats their employees super good. And so these are like worst case scenario because there's enough people who don't. You know what I mean? And and that's kind of what this this movie's like that about but about divorce. Yeah. And uh, Adam Driver's attorney kind of has some similar sentiments in the movie. He does a great job. The first is um, like Alan Alda or Ray Liotta? Yeah, Alan Alda. And he just talks about uh, – Ray Liotta's awesome too though. <laughs> Ray Liotta, I think Ray Liotta delivers very subtly the best performance of this movie. Oh, he's so good. And I say uh, that. I think, I think this is the best thing Adam Driver's ever been in. Or I say best thing. It's, I, think, I think this is the best acting he's ever done. Really? I think so. Like, there's I, there's a scene where they they have like the big fight scene, like where have you seen the sport. meme where everybody's like everybody's like everyone's first year in acting school. <laughs> yeah, except I mean because I've seen him in so many things, like I know sort of what he does and doesn't do, and I think he really brings it in this movie. I think he delivers a really because it's gut wrenching. Like you really feel for him in in a lot of these scenes. Yeah. you know. And Adam Driver is yeah. not, in my opinion, the most naturally empathic character. Like I don't I don't just see Adam Driver on screen and feel like sympathy for for this character but he he really makes me in this movie a lot of people don't feel sympathy for adam driver right now (laughs) well nor should you like he's i mean he's he's incredibly everything he makes is very successful yeah but the his attorney um alan alda uh who out of all the plays talks about how like you're a good guy this is going to be really hard for you (laughs) it's like everybody nobody's a bad person in this movie and um but like people are still shitty is sort of the thing. And yeah. it's just like, we have to just, we have to look for the best in people and not the worst. Um, well, and it really shows that, that going through something difficult, like divorce, like hard times and strife bring out, does inevitably just bring out the worst in pre- people. And this movie really yeah. shows you that. I love it. And I love the way they do. Scarlett Johansson plays an, an actress, like a, a pretty famous actress. And whenever she's not on camera in the movie, She's uh, the way they make her up is like a very they very like Scarlett Johansson is just like a naturally stunning woman. And they really like sort of try and normalize her. So she's like not shiny, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's it's weird to talk about. I don't know how to describe it, but it's really well done in the movie. It's very it, it, the movie feels very grounded. Like it doesn't feel like t- you're watching two of the biggest movie stars of their generation 
like have scenes yes. together. It, it it feels like real people having a real conflict. In fact, I've heard a lot of like critics say basically like this movie's called Marriage Story, but it really should just be called Divorce Story. Like it's established very right. early into the movie that the marriage is over. Um, I will say my favorite scene in the movie is but the marriage just can never be over because they have a kid. That's the, that's kind of the point. Well, and that, and that that is pointed out too. Like no matter how this whole thing shakes out, they have to know each other forever because they have a kid yeah. together. And um, yeah. my favorite scene in the movie though is when Scarlett Johansson is trying to figure out how to, or she's trying her best to tell her sister how to serve uh, Adam Driver with divorce papers. You know, and like she's coaching her, yeah. and the sister's acting like it's like an acting part, and it is so funny. And the, the sister's played by Merritt Weaver, who I think is one of one of the hidden gems I right Merritt now. I think she's a great actress, and um, she she is so good in that scene where she's trying so hard to make sure she gets the part right as the yeah. sister who delivers the divorce papers, and it's yeah. really really funny. And, and so, something that is mostly very like sad and traumatizing. Like she's that they were able to sort of find some kind of humor in the midst of it is also pretty impressive. Yeah. And the lady, I forget her name. I, I saw her on Twitter today. The lady that plays the, um, like the DHS monitor is, is so funny. Oh, you know who she is? She is, uh, she was on the, uh, the show, the shield and she is married oh! to the guy who created the shield, Sean Ryan. Okay. She's also, I know her from baskets. I, I forgot oh, she was okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, she's great. Um, she gives yeah. a very like awkward performance, oh, <laughs> intentionally. She's so good. So. Um, yeah, Marriage Story is uh, it. It's really good, but it's also um, like not unlike sort of like we were talking about Schindler's List. It's one of those like it's really good. I don't know if I ever want to watch it again though. It was rough, you know. It just yeah, it's gut wrenching. Um, just watching two people that you really do sort of like have sympathy for just like rip each other to pieces. It's just, it's really hard to, to watching watch. Laura Dern turn off and on her attorney. Like she's playing two different roles Yeah, and watching her switch between them is Anne Allen Alta. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. The oh, scene where they're all ordering so lunch. Fun. It w- was, very, that is incredible. That is an incredible scene. It is. And all they're doing is ordering lunch, but they, they like they built so much tension oh, and weirdness wow. into the middle of it. It's, I mean, really yeah. it, it, it is, it's a good movie. I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. At and all if you spend any time around like attorneys, it's like that. And it's so funny. Yeah. It's like, look, this is, it's just business. We're just doing this. We're just ripping each other to pieces and trying to take everything that each other cares about. And then when we're done, we'll just get some salad. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Um, all right. Well then you've got the Parasite. <laughs> Say what? Ah, you have Parasite. Yeah, I've, have you, I, I'm, I'm assuming you've not seen Parasite. I have not seen Parasite. I have not seen the the three movies that you're about to talk about, but I, I want to see them all. Oh, man. Okay, well, so Parasite is it, – it's kind of amazing how well Parasite is done considering it's a movie set in South Korea and not a single English word is spoken in this entire movie. It's it's completely oh, wow. made in like South Korean like sensibility and, uh, and language. And so it is it is so good. I like, and I don't even know – because you haven't seen it, because I'm assuming a lot of people who are listening haven't seen it, it's one of those movies, like, the less you know, the better as you go into it. I will say it sort of begins as, like, the we, the first, the opening scene is a scene you see in this trailer, which is you have this family sitting on the floor of a sub-basement apartment where they're folding pizza boxes for money, like Domino's pizza boxes. And there's, like, an insecticide truck that drives by and basically sprays insecticide into their home and... Uh, and so it, this is a movie that is just blatantly and openly about class warfare. And it's really, really good and really smart. And I need to see it again because it, it really – it's almost like Hitchcockian in the way it kind of unfolds what it what it is. And uh, it, it it's just – I don't even – again, I don't really know how to talk about it without giving anything away 
other than to say it, it does, it goes to some really interesting places and it, the characters are really interesting to watch and sort of see how they sort of figure out their problems. But also it's a movie that is about class warfare at its core, which as I was looking and I've noticed every year, if, if I go back and I look at all the movies that I see, I can find at least one major theme that kind of runs through a lot of the movies that I've seen. And this year, the major theme that I found was class warfare. Like you can go back and see a bunch of movies that came out this year, including once upon a time in Hollywood knives out this, um, the movie us, the Jordan Peele movie. Um, there's another movie Mm -hmm. called ready or not, uh, last black man in San Francisco, the nightingale wild rose, even Joker was a movie that is in one way or another about class warfare. And this movie is probably more than any of those other movies, just like blatantly about that thing. And I wish we could talk about it in detail because the details are the thing that make this movie interesting. But I will say, if you haven't seen this movie, and the reason you haven't seen it is because you don't like reading subtitles, you need to get over that restriction and just watch this movie before somebody spoils it for you. Because it's really, really good. It it it, it is a movie you will think about for a very long time after you see it. And I, I right. again, I need to see it again, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. That's Parasite. Uh, April a couple of years ago was really into Snowpiercer, which is a South South Korean movie. Same same director, Bong Joon Ho. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah that was a, a a feat of form. It was well, and also a movie about class warfare. By the way, like Bong, yes, Bong Joon Ho so. has a has a real. And, and I heard somebody, I think it was on the Big Picture with Sean Fantasy, saying like Bong Joon Ho is not um he's not making metaphor. He's a literalist. He's basically like let's take this thing that we struggle with and make it as literal as possible. And that is what he does in his movies. And so, yeah, we, ta- we talked about this a few times, but I kind of feel like the theme of art in 2019 is on the nose. A lot. Of, well, I mean, we talked about the Avett brothers album, which, which absolutely is that is like very yeah. much like, I'm just going to look directly into the camera and say the thing that I'm feeling. Right. We're done with metaphor. We are dispensing with imagery. Yeah. We don't have time for that. We'll, we'll do it. We'll, yeah. Like par- Parasite is definitely that. It definitely, Bong Joon-ho is not interested in being subtle. He's going to, he's going to say the thing he needs to say. He's going to do it really well and really artistically and really creatively, but no one is going to leave like the theater after having seen Parasite and been like, I wonder what that was about. <laughs> like everybody's going to fully know what it is that Bong Joon-ho was trying to say. So uh, one movie that actually does not fit that description is uh, the next movie on my list, which is Jojo Rabbit. Now, you say you haven't seen this yeah. either? No, but I want to really bad. It is very good. I, and I've heard the, the detracting the, – the, neg- the negative response to this movie is like Hitler and Nazis are not funny inherently. And so don't make a joke out of something that is not inherently funny. My defense of that – and I understand. If somebody, if somebody sees that and they're upset by that, that's, that's fine. I realize like, that's, that can be very close to the bone, especially in the world that we live in right now. But the thing is like that's not new. Like Charlie Chaplin made The Great Dictator in 1940, which is one year before we entered World War One or World War II. Yeah. And Jeez. World War One, right? And um, and and that movie, I would argue, is a masterpiece. And I I would go so far as to say Jojo Rabbit is in the same lineage. It is it, it is a descendant of the Great Dictator. It it does a good job of like basically it's you it, it's about a, a young boy in Nazi Germany named uh, whose nickname is Jojo, and he is by his mother's description he is a fanatic about being a Nazi. He's part of the Hitler Youth Corps. And Adolf Hitler is his invisible friend. And so every portrayal of Adolf Hitler isn't really Adolf Hitler. It's JoJo's imagined way of seeing. It, it, it's how he imagines Adolf Hitler to be. And you see sort of him, how he sort of idealizes Adolf Hitler, especially early in the movie. And the thing that really kind of shook me about this movie, even though it is very funny in a lot of ways, is I know people right now at this moment who feel 
about Donald Trump the way that this kid feels about Adolf Hitler. And I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler necessarily. I realize that that's, that's low hanging fruit. But what I'm saying is yeah, kind of like how uh, they compared uh, the Democrats to Pontius Pilate today in the impeachment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, the, the, the martyrdom complex is exhausting, but yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, that, that notion that like this blind fanaticism and just sort of like this hero worship of someone who does not deserve to be worshipped as a hero, um, this is not new. And 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 really, if you were to like sit down and interview 10-year-old boys living in Berlin in the late 1930s, they probably would act and sound a lot like this kid Jojo does. And so it's interesting because what it does is it shows you like not everybody saw this guy as a monster, even though he clearly was historically a monster – what this does is it shows you like this is how this happens. This is how people get wrapped up in fascists and monsters is that they become convinced that this person is a hero, even though and and of course, like if you see the trailer, you realize like this movie is about sort of the deconstruction of that and, and kind of like the unraveling yeah. of of all of those things. And I think Taika Watiti is a genius and I, I will see anything he 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 makes. And I think this is a really, really good movie. And it's and it kind of sneaks up on you in terms because it's it's kind of funny and it's lighthearted, and then all of a sudden, at like on the turn of a dime, it's not funny anymore, and you're sort of like living in in a real in, in a world in which you realize like oh Jojo sort of has to confront all the things that he's taken for granted, which are like the assumptions about the people he thought were his heroes. When really, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, this person is a villain, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's 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 great. I I cannot recommend it highly enough. And um, I, it's it's another one of those movies I want to talk about more. So that, that's Jojo Rabbit, and then Booksmart. I'm I'm really surprised you've not seen Booksmart. Yeah, it was it's on my list, man. I I had a kid this year. Hey, man, I totally understand. It's on Hulu. You can you can watch it right now if you have Hulu. I know, I know. Um, this, so this is a movie. Just real quickly, this is a movie about two high school girls on their last day of high school. Uh, one is played by Beanie Feldstein, who uh, famously is the younger sister of Jonah Hill in real life, and the other girl is played by Caitlin Deaver. And it is their last day of high school, and they're realizing that even though they worked hard and got into their uh, their schools of choice, uh, it turns out all the kids that they were judging as slacker, slackers also uh, <laughs> got everything that they wanted. And so now they're having all sorts of regrets about all the things they didn't do in high school. So they're going to, in one night, try and live out all of the fun, exciting things that they wish they had done all through high school. And it is uh, – it's about friendship. It is about um, sort of how you see your life, how we how we reckon with the past and the future. And it's um, it's really good and heartwarming. And it is it is the movie that until very recently I would have probably said was my favorite movie of this year. It's – so so good, and the the characters are so likable. It did not do very well in the box office, which bums me out because I want more movies like this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, highly recommend. Um, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver are both really great. Caitlin Deaver also. We're not talking about this, but um, she also stars in the Netflix series Unbelievable, which is about um, yeah. I, mean, of sexual I haven't assault. finished that. I haven't finished that, but it's it's big. It's, it's very it's good. tough. Very good. And she is great in it. She yeah. she gives a really, really strong performance in that show. Very um, good. So she she had, in my opinion, she had a very good year. She I think she gave two amazing performances, one in Booksmart and one in Unbelievable. Um, but yeah, I mean, Booksmart right now is streaming on Hulu. And so if you have a subscription to Hulu, there's no good reason why you're not watching Booksmart right now. So – uh, so that's that does it. For, so we've got two more. So you you mentioned the Firefest documentaries, which technically is two movies, but but I'll allow it. It's well, it's a it's a conversation more than anything. So these are but neither of these are like the greatest documentary I've ever seen or anything. But I got uh, I was supposed to take a day trip for work to Chicago, and I got snowed in and spent the night at a high place uh, where there was nothing anywhere near me, and so I sat in my room and I watched both Firefest documentaries back to back. And um, wow. so. 
the the thing that's great is Netflix had this fire fest, fire the greatest party that never happened documentary announced like last year in 2018 and they released it. And, uh, but, but the Monday before everybody knew it was coming out like on a Friday and the Monday before Hulu dropped a documentary they were making that they weren't talking about. And so it was, it was wild. It was like a battle of these two different documentaries about this one event that was already really, uh, contentious, uh, fire fast. If to just to catch you up real quick, um, this 25 year old entrepreneur, just absolute awful, just, ugh, you know, the like entrepreneur, Yeah. you know, you've met that guy. He's like, what do you do? I'm an entrepreneur. And you're like, Oh cool. Tell me about your businesses. And like, he's just not done anything. He just gets <laughs> excited. It's just like one of those guys. Ugh. And anyway, he gets with Ja Rule and they make this giant festival and they make all these promises about who all is going to be there. And they get all these social media influencers to talk about it. And they have talk about these like private residences and all this stuff. And so all of these like super rich kids or kids with way too much access to credit just like show up on this island. And there's nothing. There's like white bread and cheese slices and FEMA tents <laughs> and no bands. And the guys here throw the festival like aren't even there half the time. And so there's this group. They have a uh, Jerry Media that are like helping promote it. And they also were a part of making the Netflix documentary directed by this guy named Chris Smith. And so um, and so there's this whole thing where Hulu is like in their documentary that came out before the Netflix one. They're like, hey, also, there's another documentary coming out that is produced by the people who are behind this. And Netflix is like, we don't pull any punches on anybody involved. And also, we're not the ones who paid Billy McFarlane, who's about to go to jail for fraud, $125,000. <laughs> and so, like, nobody is – like, it's just like this this sub-conversation going on around these documentaries, which are so compelling because it is the people that – everyone has no sympathy for in like the most terrible situation you can imagine yourself in. If you were ever wealthy enough to end up in that situation, like <laughs> watching it unfold on Twitter, the afternoon happened was, I mean, insane. It was Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude at its greatest. And then this <laughs> documentaries come out. You're thinking, Oh, we'll get the definitive answers. There's going to be a documentary about the two documentaries. I bet on it. I'll bet you money on it. That is fascinating. <laughs> I never, I have not watched so, either documentary, but I've heard many, like exactly what you're saying. Just like lots of people, are like this is insane. And dude, the people involved and the things that they admit are wild. <laughs> I absolutely, I can't even repeat what people are like admitted on there on this podcast. Like it is, people were willing to go so far uh, to cut, like just to cover this thing up or to make it happen, and it was insane. The, the whole thing is bonkers. Like I remember like, the, the news thing is like there's so many service providers on these islands who were like banking on this money and working really hard and never getting paid. That's crazy. So if I, I realize like there's lots of opinions about this, but in your opinion, which documentary should be watched first? Um, well, they can't, Hulu came out first. Okay, so is that is that the right one to watch first? Then it's called Fire Fraud. Okay, so the Hulu one, and then jump over to, to Netflix to to see the other one. Dude, either way, it, you're in for a treat. <laughs> awesome. So, talk to me about Julio Torres. This is the the tenth item on our list is uh, it's a comedy special. So, it's have you my... seen this? No, I didn't even know it existed until you sent the list. All right, Julio Torres is this just gift uh, that I received this year. He's a comedian um, who writes for SNL, and just the stories he tells, like on Seth Meyers, are so funny. 
They're so funny. <laughs> Tells a story about having this really bad. He like he sent an intern to go get him a, a milkshake, like a, from Shake Shack or something, <laughs> and he like he this which one? And he goes, I don't know. And he's got this great. Um, where is he from? He's from San Salvador, maybe El Salvador. Sorry. And he has this incredible accent that just makes everything all that much funnier. The way he uses it to 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 tell his stories. And he talks about this intern. He's like, I don't know. And he pulls up all the pictures of the milkshakes. And he's like, that one. And as soon as the intern leaves, he gets this crazy migraine. And so he he sits down on the couch. He turns off the lights and sits down on the couch. And when the intern gets back and opens the door, there he is sitting on the couch in a dark room. And across the room from him, he's just staring off of the wall. But across the room from him, in the direction of his stare, it's his computer screen with that giant <laughs> picture of a milkshake on it. And he's like, in that intern's world. I made him leave to get me a milkshake and then sat in the dark and stared at a picture of that milkshake for 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's got this special called My Favorite Shapes. And he starts off talking to his mom in Spanish on the phone. And he's like, I don't know, mom, because if I don't show them, no one will. <laughs> I have to tell them about my shapes. <laughs> and so he's just got like a, he's got like glittery shoes on his conveyor belt going around him. It looks like a weird outtake from Star Trek or something. And he, he's like, all right, we have to get started. I have a lot of shapes to show you. And he begins a conveyor belt and he picks up like an acrylic clear circle. And he's like, this <laughs> is a circle. No, this is a square. He's like, a square is hard to describe. It is like a door, but it's more complicated than that. And then he's like, this is one of my favorite shapes. And I had to get all these shapes cleared by a lawyer at HBO. And at the end, totally unprompted, she looked at me and she said, and my favorite was the square. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like toys. Like one of them's a lunchbox toy after McDonald's when he was a kid. He's just like a kid who loved his toys. Yeah. And he shows you all of these objects. And he tells these insane stories about these objects and has these weird conversations with them. And it is – you like. I will. I promise you, seventy-five percent of the people uh, listening to this will turn it off fifteen minutes in. But twenty-five percent of you are going to watch this thing and just, just cry laughing. There's a moment where Lin Manuel Miranda is doing a monologue in Spanish as a cactus. Okay, so my my mom was weeping next to me <laughs> as I made her watch it last week. It is one of those things where as soon as I finished it, I started scrolling through my phone to try and find someone enough that I could recommend it to them, knowing, like feeling confident enough that they would watch it so that I could talk so that April and I could talk about it with someone. Oh, that's fine. Cause the whole time we were just like, what is this? What is this? What are we experiencing? <laughs> is this a comedy special? Is this a documentary about objects? What is happening? All right, well, let's talk about TV. Uh, JB, you added The Mandalorian to your list while a after what it seems like there was a little bit of internal debate over whether or not to do this. Yeah, I watched a lot of great TV shows this year. And, um, ah, you know, I wanted to talk about The Righteous Gemstones and Survivor and all kinds of other <laughs> stuff. But we're going to talk about The Mandalorian because it's Star Wars and it's important. Well, I know you're you're an enormous Star Wars fan and that there is a Star Wars universe TV show on Disney+. Plus. Has to be a big deal for you. It's huge, man. And my wife's into it. She's actually kind of mad at me that we're doing this tonight instead of watching The Mandalorian oh. and also yeah. the Survivor finale. <laughs> She's like, wait, you're telling me that we're not going to watch the Survivor finale live after everything that happened this season because you're recording a podcast, <laughs> a Bruce Springsteen podcast, not about a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. But when you put it that way, it sounds stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> but the Mandalorian's great. It's like a western in space, and I was so worried because more than anything, 
I don't think that like Star Wars is going to be bad. I'm just I, I just feel blessed that we get more Star Wars. You know, like I, I watch I watch movies and TV shows to have fun. Yes. And a lot of people watch them not to have fun, like to complain. And I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't want to not enjoy something. And I don't want to be so hard to please. And a few seconds in, I was like, this is really cheesy. And then I was like, Star Wars is really cheesy. <laughs> and that's, that's why we all love it. That's why, like, adults and children alike can fall in love with it is because it's so it's it's so campy. But it takes itself seriously enough to, like, say things about the world around us, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, for years, Star Wars fans have been saying they wanted, like, a Boba Fett, like, solo story. And I realize this character is not technically Boba Fett, but this is basically what that would be. Like, if you got if you got a Boba Fett movie or TV show, this is what it would be, you know? Yeah. It's it's so – it plays so much fan service, but it's also just so much fun. And just, like, the, like they cast Bill Burr, who, like, <laughs> notoriously doesn't like Star Wars. Oh, I didn't know that because I, I just, I just watched Star that episode. Wars jokes. Really? <laughs> it's so great. Uh, it's so much fun. It really is. It's sort of an adventure of the week. It's, it's, it's just great. And they have different directors who are kind of bringing their own stamp to the visual world of it. I thought that uh, Bryce Dallas Howard did an incredible job with her episode. I thought her episode felt like a whole Star Wars movie. And it's just it's just been a thrill to be a part of. It's really good. There's a ton of questions and a ton of things that are like silly, you know, and like who knows how the tracking fobs work and it seems stupid, but I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. Well and that's the thing, it's like if I mean if you're gonna get all like logical about everything, the entire Star Wars universe begins to crumble pretty quickly. But like that's not right. I mean a parsec is a distance and a unit of time measurement, you know, like yeah. come on. We're we're you know, there's midi chlorines and fobs. Deal, deal with it. Yeah, this is this show is really, really good. And I mean, it's and exactly for all the reasons you're saying, it's super fun. Like this is the one thing I have. Um, th- this is the one thing that my wife and me and my two oldest kids, my nine year old and my seven year old, we all like look for. Like this is the one thing we do all as a family every single week. We we wait till the baby yes. goes to sleep. And then we all the four the rest of the of us we sit down and we watch the Mandalorian together and it's super fun. It's like we Protect get the LBY sit down at all costs. Say what? Protect LBY at all costs. <laughs> Little baby Yoda. Yeah, that's funny. Oh man, April texted me and she was like, "Bone broth? That's way too on the nose. I don't know <laughs> if I can handle this." And I said, "Give it five minutes." And five minutes later, she texted me. She was like, ee, "It's so cute." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's perfect. I, the first time I played Shadows of the Empire on the Nintendo 64, I was like, I want a Dash Rendar or a Boba Fett like CD side of Star Wars, like adventure Western TV show. Yeah. Like, why is there a Star Wars TV show? I've never understood that since I was a kid, since I played like Shadows of the Empire. I was like, the stories are here. They're great. Let's make this happen in real life. And now it's finally happening. It's, like, I'm it's on board. really good. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was the flagship program that launched Disney Plus. Like Disney Plus launched in November. And this was sort of this was the thing that they were saying like if you want to see the newest Star Wars thing you got to get Disney Plus and this is it and it's and like it's very ten point six million people were subscribed on day one yeah yeah that's right so uh, so yeah the Mandalorian is very enjoyable and I realize like like you said I realize there are people out there who just like love to hate things and are not enjoying it and I gotta say if I gotta choose between enjoying something and not enjoying something I'm going to I'm gonna want to enjoy it and this is totally worth enjoying it's really yeah hundred percent. Totally. So then you've got Fleabag. Listen, now I've heard a lot of people say that this is one of the best shows of the year, and I have not watched it. 
but I do oh. like Phoebe Willer Bridge. I like I like her uh, work on Killing Eve. So I've heard good things yeah. about this. Everything she touches is gold to me, and she's she plays this character, and I think this is sort of true of her sort of as well. But this character is like totally undesirable on paper in every single way. But all the things that make her totally undesirable on paper, like in reality, make her so attractive you know like magnetic uh <laughs> there's a scene where she's like hooking up with this guy and he's shouting out like a thing about her that everyone would no one would want shouted out about them <laughs> but he's so into it and i was like i looked at april and i was like that's kind of the whole thing with this character isn't it is that just like the only reason we're attracted to her is because she's so sort of undesirable on paper <laughs> mm. it's so good it's so funny we watched it in the, it's it's pretty raunchy we watched it in the hospital after the baby was born um and every time a nurse walked in, we we're like, pause it, pause it. <laughs> you want the nurse to see in a sterile yeah. environment. You don't want the nurse to know that you're watching yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's, it, I mean, just watch it. I don't want to like give anything away. It's just really, it's funny. It's dark and funny. I've heard that this is it. Like that she plans to not make more of this. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I heard too. That's fine. It was great. It was two very short seasons. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I mean, you could finish it before you realize you'd started it. That's I, I like I like when people end things on their own terms. You know, yeah. even even though the thing is successful, that they can still say like I I don't think there's anything else to say about this. I think this, the story as it is 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 what it's supposed to be. So yeah. that's Fleabag, and that's on Amazon Prime, correct? Um, yes, it is. Cool. All right. Well, then uh, we have Watchmen. Do you watch Watchmen? So I've read it. I I was really hesitant because it looks so much different from the comic. Yeah. And then I heard Alan Moore like talk about the same thing, and I realized like I don't want to be Alan Moore. And yeah, Alan so, Moore hates everything. You can't you can't yeah. go by Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah, and then I remembered like I kind of didn't even I, like I was blown away by the Watchmen as a work, but I kind of didn't even like it. Just felt like Alan Moore was just being like, "Look how smart I am." Every page. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I've I've watched the first ten minutes a few times. I just don't. Every time I watch it, I'm like, "Whew, I gotta be somewhere for this, man." <laughs> yeah. I gotta be like home and locked locked in, ready to go. I don't. <laughs> It's intense. It's it's the it's the um the firebombing Wall Street is where it starts in Tulsa. The, yeah, the Black Wall Street massacre for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is, which by the way is a really bold, interesting place to start a TV show. So yeah, the, the the concept of the show, the conceit is basically that the events of the comic or the the graphic novel Watchmen happened as they occur in the, the graphic novel, not the movie, not the Zack Snyder movie, but the the, the comic, the Alan Moore Dave Gibbons comic. So this is – in fact, Damon Lindelof, who is the creator of the show, has said that the, the graphic novel is the Old Testament and this show is the New Testament. And so what this, this show takes place in 2019 in the world that is shared by the graphic novel. So it's not, um, it's not a retelling of the graphic novel. It's basically like just assuming that all the things in the graphic novel happened, this is where we are in 2019. And so it begins with the Tulsa massacres in 1921. And all told through the eyes of a child, and then sort of you fast forward into the post-Dr. Manhattan sort of Watchmen universe of 2019. And in this world, and I won't give anything away beyond what's in the pilot, but in or at the, at the very beginning of the pilot, that basically all the all the police officers are masked, ma- like wearing masks, uh, because they are in constant danger. And that there's a white supremacist group called like the seventh cavalry, I think is what they're called. And they all wear the masks that look like the, the character Rorschach from the graphic novel. Right. And, and so it, it begins as a story about like basically 
black police officers in an adversarial relationship with white supremacists who and and the white supremacists are all sort have all sort of assumed the identity of this former masked vigilante from the 80s and that's where it begins and it continues to i'm gonna go i'm gonna go so far as to say this is the best thing i've seen on tv in i don't even know how long like i think in between this and uh succession which we're gonna talk about in a second i think this is the best i was never in a game of thrones but this was this was the best year to be an HBO subscriber. In my opinion, this is the best year to be an HBO subscriber since The Sopranos went off the air. This is so, so good. And this show, and as far as I know, Damon Lindelof has said he has no intention of continuing to run the show beyond this first season. But if they decide to like get another head writer and tell new stories based in the same universe, that's fine. But as far as we know, like this is a story. It's a self-contained story. And it's cool. so good and it is yeah i heard the ending was really it was it was the one of the few times an ending has been worth it yeah lately. well and, and the thing is the the first five or six episodes are about sort of like the struggle of racism in america through the prism of like mass vigilantes and then it sort of as it goes on sort of becomes more and more connected to the original source material of of the original graphic novel and that's fine it is it, it is it's I, I would argue it's a pretty it's a mostly satisfying ending and uh, but really, to me, the thing that makes it great is every episode all by itself is fascinating, and it just it creates this world that I want to hear more and more stories out, like that, that exist in this world. Like, and that's that's a hard thing to do. It's it's hard to create a world from. I mean, I guess not from nothing, but you know, because it's it has the source material, but a world that imagines that the source material happened thirty years ago, and we're still living in the world today. And like, what would the world look like if all those things had happened in in the novel Watchmen or in the graphic novel? And um, it's so good, and it, it is a it, it's a story that centers mostly a a character played by Regina King, who is a a black woman who also is a uh, masked vigilante who is also a police officer named Sister Knight, and it is so it, it like every every episode it takes mass these big big swings and it's trying so hard to make some really really interesting points, and I think it is largely successful. It is really good, and you've not watched a single episode. I've watched the the beginning of the first episode a few times. Oh my gosh. It's great. And now that it's done, you could totally binge the whole thing. I would recommend like watch an episode and then like sleep on it and then go like I I watched every single episode the day it came out. I I watched every episode. This is the only show I can remember like watching as soon as it was available. Every day. And in a while. And uh, man, I really enjoyed that. I I liked having like one episode and then having a week to sort of like mull it over and really just sort of like – dwell on it it's i'm it's, ready for it i'm excited it's so good have you I, I assume you've read the original the graphic novel the alan yeah Moore. absolutely yeah well then yeah because what i don't know is if someone has ne- is not at all familiar with the source material will they still enjoy this i want to think that yes they would but there, there's so much in here that does sort of rely on previous knowledge so i do wonder if the bar to entry is a lot higher for people who haven't necessarily read the graphic novel I wonder if I need to reread The Watchmen, which I don't know if I can do that. I don't think you do. I think a lot of it will come back to you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure okay. you'll you'll pick up on some other things, but like the basic tenets of what that is, like who is Doctor Manhattan, who is Ozymandias, who is Rorschach, like who who these major characters were and what were the major events in the in the story. That stuff will come back to you pretty quickly, I think. All right, all right, yeah. Cool. Like, I didn't reread. I haven't read. I haven't read the original Watchmen in like ten years. So, but I uh, I fully enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, I think it's been ten for me too. Oof. 
So, so good. All right, so that's that's Watchmen. Now, uh, have you watched The Boys? That's on HBO. Yeah, that's on HBO. Uh, I have not seen The Boys. I have, uh, I work with a guy who, who recommended it very highly. He said it's the darkest, funniest uh, thing that, that I'll watch. It, yeah, and that, the reason I put The Boys and Watchmen together on this list is because they're both sort of like a deconstruction of the superhero genre. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the boys, and is, that's what the original Watchmen comic book was—was was a deconstruction of superhero genres. It was, and, I, and it was like it, it, it's sort of like the seminal work of that. It, it kind of changed. I mean, really, is one of those those things that you could talk about. Like this, the story kind of changed how we think about comic books. Well, and it changed the way that superhero comics are written. They exist yes. well. They are well, way more rooted in the real world now than they were before. Yes, absolutely, and sort and so the boys is sort of like the next furthest step into into the extreme on that. The boys is basically like, what if there was the justice league, but they were like corporate shills and maybe like behind the scenes, not very nice people. And, um, it's, they were like treated like the way that football players and social media influencers are. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. What, what if they were, what if they had like corporate sponsorships and were relied upon to like end global conflict in the name of advertising in, you know, like, yeah. In the name of Halliburton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What if they had private? What would that be like? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it'd be crazy. Too bad so, we'll never know. I've not read the, the series, The Boys, but this is really good, and I, I'd heard like mixed reviews, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. And the thing I, I really enjoy about this not, not only that Carl Urban is in it, I really like Carl Urban, but the, to me, the, the big discovery of 2019 is um, Jack Quaid, who is the son of Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid. And he is so, so good in the show. He's, he's kind of the main POV character of the show. And he's great. And I will, I, I am a, he, by the end of the series, I was like, man, I, I got to find other stuff that Jack Quaid is in because he is really good. And I, I want to see more stuff with him in it. Um, yeah, cool, man. I'm excited to hear a good new Next Generation actor. Yeah, he, and he definitely is, is that. So, um, and, and I, I just saw a teaser for the new season. So Amazon Prime is, is already sort of gearing up to release season two, which I, I cannot wait to see. I thought this was really, it's very dark and it's very violent. So if like you're expecting like Justice League, your super friends or something like that, like that's not what this is. This is um, very upsetting <laughs> in a lot of ways if that's, those are your yeah. expectations. So that's the boys on Amazon Prime. So now uh, Succession on HBO. Um, did you watch this? I, I have seen everything but the last episode. April and I just can't ever be ready to watch that on the same day. Uh, but holy cow, this show is so dark and funny. And uh, I feel like it's close to the boys. <laughs> and that is a deconstruction of like how we see people in the public sphere. Yeah. Yeah, this is basically – I mean this is – and they've made no secret about like the, this is loosely based upon like the Murdoch family who owns Fox yeah. News. And and that definitely shows up in several episodes where you you really do have a lot of sort of like this Fox News sort of sensibilities kind of show up in really really dark messed up ways. Um, the first season of the show, I had a hard time getting into it, and I, I watched the first two episodes and thought like, ah, this isn't for me. This is I don't really I'm not really connecting with any of these characters. I'm not saying that like a character has to be like likable or good, but they have to be compelling. Like I have to want to see. I have to at least yeah. be marginally interested in what happens to them. And I wasn't after the first two episodes, but I kept be- being told mainly by Chris Ryan on The Ringer um, that like this show is worth watching and you need to go back. And I did. And I'm really, really glad I did because season two of the show is just bananas. And there is so it much. It reminds me of Veep in the way they talk to each other. Yes, very but much But they so. don't do it in this in the format of a 20-minute comedy. They do it in the format of a 45-minute drama. Well, so it's like yeah. the things they say to each other – are the reason that me and April so quickly moved right through the first few episodes 
without giving a single care about any of the characters. <laughs> it's because the things that they say to each other are just like impressively offensive and biting. <laughs> yes. Well, and Jesse, I mean, there, there's connective tissue there because Jesse Armstrong, who's the creator of Succession, was previously a writer on Veep. Yeah, I lo- and I love it. Like uh, Jonah Ryan, the guy that plays Jonah Ryan. Um, ah, Timothy, I just forgot his name. Uh, <laughs> From Veep. Yeah, he yeah. was featured. He was featured in a GQ um, oral history of that really creepy incesty Folgers commercial from 2009 this week. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny because he was like, I really don't remember anything. But you guys are talking about how the brother and sister seemed like they were going to bang. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and reading it in his Jonah Ryan voice was so funny. But uh, he he was on Conan one time and he said, yeah, it's funny. The things that they say, except they say the things they say about my character are also true about me as a human. Like the fact that I'm just like a really tall pile of donuts. And so that hurts <laughs> when they say it on the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, they're, uh, they, like some of these insults are actually true to to like you as a person, <laughs> right? Right. But the stuff they see on Succession is like, oh man, they are. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, it's a whole thing. It's it's hilarious it, and and so dark. It's very very good. I'm I'm super excited about the next season. When also, I, Holly Hunter's in it, and I'll watch anything Holly Hunter's in. Holly Hunter's really good. There's also uh, the guy who plays basically the uh, Jared Kushner character, uh, Michael McFadden, who plays Tom, yeah. is. So, so good. He was utterly despicable in the first season. In the second season, you go back and forth between hating him and feeling so sorry for him, especially yeah. in that episode uh, where they play Boar on the Floor. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. That is, I'll never forget that for as long as I live, the Boar on the Floor episode. That is just oh. abject humiliation just for the sake of like showing like your power. Your and, power, yeah. Um, well, hey, the guy that plays uh, Cousin Greg is going to play the CEO of WeWork in a show about WeWork that's coming out soon, uh, and I'm like, that is, if a guy was ever built for a role. <laughs> Greg the Egg. I love it. Greg the Egg. <laughs> I love Greg That's so the real much. reason we watch it is because we were like, what's going to happen to Greg? We're just so worried about Greg. Greg definitely is the most sympathetic character on the show. For yeah. Sure. Uh, but he's no hero. <laughs> no, he, he's not a hero, but he's very funny. He's very good. He's, he's the closest thing you have to a protagonist, and he is, <laughs> he is not necessarily sympathetic. Well, I mean, he's just, it, like, there are times where you wonder, like, is he... Is he like just dumb, or is he just just lacks uh, like completely lacks confidence? And I think the, just, the last couple of episodes kind of figure like, out what, which one it is. But what, he's also like uh, he's also always like two two feet away from a billion dollar check. Yeah, yeah. Gre- Greg's an interesting character in the show too. <sighs> um, that for, for yeah. Lots of, but yeah, and that's sort of the thing is like season two really kind of developed each character in a way to where even if you don't like them, they're really interesting. Like it, it is fascinating to sort of watch these people just interact with the world around them and just like the, the level of malice and just obliviousness that they, they have as they just move through the world is amazing. So uh, for Holly Hunter, man. Yeah. Holly she's Hunter, always, she can always be your, your moral dividing line. This show, this show is perfectly cast. There's every single actor is exactly who they should be in the show. Yeah. It's so cool that they got somehow like they did such good CG to, to make Roger Ailes in the show. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. Well, I've never seen Wait, modern. Not Roger Ailes, Murdoch. What's his? Rupert Murdoch. I got the wrong. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch. I thought you were making a joke because Roger Ailes is dead. Yeah, um, I, I, I got. I get Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch mixed up. I I was, I, they were conflated as the same person in my mind when I made that joke. Easy mistake to make. All right. It was way more successful in my head because they were the same person. So modern love. I've never. I've never seen an episode of this. Do you read the modern love column in New York Times? I do not. 
Oh, this is like I look forward to this part of the week. It's always just the most beautiful story of just like of, of like love and self growth and and um, humanity. You just see beautiful moments in humanity. Some are sad. Some you want to cheer for. You cry at the end of everyone anyway. And they they made on Amazon Prime. They made New York Times produce like six episodes. And each episode is like a, a short film unto itself. Is it's that correct? A short film of a modern love essay. Okay. And Rob, I cried my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. In every single one of these episodes. I'm talking big boy tears. Like there's one called When the Doorman is Your Man mm-hmm. that will make you love humanity. You know? Oh, they're so good. They're so well cast. There's a few people you've heard of. There's a few people you haven't. Um one episode has um What's the guy's name from Newsroom and from um, – he won an Oscar a couple years ago, I think. Dev oh, Patel. Dev Patel, yes. Yeah. He was and in Hotel Mumbai Keener. this year. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine Keener and Dev Patel are um, are in an episode together that is just uh, – it is just heartbreaking and beautiful. <laughs> and they just are so good. They can they can they can each just sit at a table and act with their face so much. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They're both – so good at that. Yeah. And they're just such lovely people that you really want to believe their characters. So modern love, man, you, if you don't cry, you don't have a heart. I didn't realize this was based on a New York times column. Yeah. The New York times column is called modern. They, in fact, they just released like a, of 100 word essays, modern love essays, like brief oh. ones. They at the end of the year sometimes, but um, yeah, it's, it's great. The modern love essay in the New York times comes out, Every week. It's so good. Well, that's interesting to know. Okay, I'll have to check that out. So then you've got Shrill. Yeah, all right. So Shrill, I, I didn't leave it feeling like, oh, wow, that really um, said, like, made a statement. But I watched it really fast. And I watched it, like, while I was, like, uh, feeding my baby at, like, 2 in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of a week. So I wasn't fully all the way there, probably, to like sit there and, and jot down notes and stuff. But Eddie Bryant from SNL plays. Um, oh my gosh, I forgot the name of the writer. Lindy West. She, yes, Lindy West is is a writer, author, columnist um, who writes just about like being a woman. She writes about all kinds of things, but she's gotten kind of famous writing about being like a vocal woman who is not the shape that most men want their women to be. Um, and Bryant plays her and it, uh, is not kind to Dan Savage <laughs> at all. You say it's uh, not kind to Dan Savage. Yeah. He was her boss, Lindy West boss in real life. Oh, really? Like um, the columnist Dan, Dan Savage. Yeah, they worked. He was her editor, and he was not kind to her. Really? And he wrote a column about like why should why should people employers have to pay health care for obese people? Whoa, for while real? She, while she worked. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so that's in the show. And so I I loved it because number one, it's hilarious. Eddie Bryant is one of the funniest people alive, and it's really well cast. And it just tells these like really kind of like beautiful stories about friendship and supporting each other and, you know, kind of like trying to strike it out on your own and make a name for yourself while also showing sort of like how shitty it is to be a, 
like a, a fat person in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, uh, I've been a fat person in the world since I broke my leg in fifth grade. Um, I've always been big, but that's when I became like a fat person. And, um, I've been a, I've been a skinny person too. And people complimented me all the time. And they didn't know that I was like not healthy at all when I was a skinny person. Uh, and I was also super mean to everybody. Um, I had a friend, he was like, remember when you were fat and you were like, nice. Those are the days. <laughs> but, uh, my wife and I were, um, having dinner with some family and someone was like, all right, let's bless this food and let's eat before J and make get in line before JB does. Just like not trying to say anything. He wasn't being mean. He, he likes me. Um, he likes me more than I like him. <laughs> that's just what he said. Cause that's what people say, you know, like, Hey Hoss, what's up? Um, and April kept going on and on about how I shouldn't, you know, like how so much to say something to him. And I turned to her and I was like, I'm so glad that you feel bad about that. Say something to him if you want to. Don't say anything else to me about it. I've had a conversation with the world about my weight every day of my life. I'm tired of it. So like, you can say something to him if you want to. But I'm I'm not. Like, I'm just going to be me. And I'm going to try not to think about that shittiness. And this show nails that. About how, like, um, fat people are people too. And it's it's tough. And, like, there's a lot of stuff in the world that affects how you look and who you are. And... And uh, sometimes, like, the world treats people who aren't the idealized version of what we think people should be not well, you know? Yeah. And that's just – I guess, like, a part of it is, like, as a as a straight, white, middle-class male, I sort of don't identify with with any um, prosecution, you know what I mean? Persecu- persecution stories. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of – and that's kind of tough for me um, because I want to, like, feel empathy for people and be there for them, you know, and, like – but it's also great because I'm like, I'm privileged enough to not have to worry about all that stuff. You know, it's like a weird, it's a weird line to walk, but it's like the least, you know, it's the thing that like my therapist would say, other people's suffering doesn't negate your own suffering, but it's also like, it's a weird line to walk, you know, like how yeah. can I be there for you? So I can't say I understand cause I don't cause I'm like a middle-class white male. And I always forget that like, this is a thing I've dealt with my whole life and it's just something I like really shove down and don't address in a healthy way oftentimes. And it's a thing that I think a lot of people, these kinds of things, are things that a lot of people like bury down and yeah. like my therapist says your suffering the existence of other people's suffering does not negate your, your own and it's just a it's a really nice look at that that you know i guess you know it's kind of hard to for people to feel sympathy for me like uh for being a fat guy i ate a bunch of taco bell the other day <laughs> but at the same time like it still sucks sometimes yeah uh, when the world's shitty and uh, Ad Bryant does a great job of like showing a fully realized human who's fully herself and not just like her being not the idealized version for for someone else because because it also shows that like she is the idealized version for so many other people just not in the way that she society wants us to be does that make sense yeah totally. like she's her best friend's best friend and she's like her boyfriend's favorite person uh well not that in there but like there's a guy who thinks she's like she's, her smile she's the most beautiful thing in the world he's been crazy about her for you know, forever. And, and there's a, just like those little moments where you're like, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. All right. Well then you've got uh catastrophe, which I, I think that it ended this year, right? Was this the final season? Ended. This was it. And I've it was never so seen good. it. I've, I've heard that it's great though. And I've, I've heard that I should be watching it. Yes. This is another show where like the things that people say to each other are so mean, but in this case they're like, it's not me. It's, it's, uh, if you've ever been like in a really long, deep relationship with someone, you have at some point like really hated that person for some amount of time, whether it just be a few minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just, you've been madder at that person. If you really care for someone, you've been madder at that person than anyone you've ever been mad at. 
And, and uh, this show shows that in those moments, you can say things to people that are so hurtful and not even mean to. <laughs> yeah. But it's also about people really trying to work through, like, just make love work because love is not something that just happens to you. Love is a thing that everyone has to commit to and work hard at, yeah. you know? And that's that's what the show is. And it's great. And everyone is great. Sharon Horgan and Rob um, – I just forgot his name. Is it Rob Delaney? Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan are – like the fact that they're not married in real life makes me sad because they're so good in the show. I mean they're both like happily married. <laughs> this is one of the shows that for years has been on my radar and I've just never taken the time to watch it. And it's it. like – it's kind of like Fleabag. It's just like four, three – like it's like four, six episode seasons and they're 20 minutes each and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. At one point he finds out about like Quakers – Rob Delaney's character, and he's like, oh, this seems so nice because he's just looking for some peace and quiet like the rest of us. <laughs> and it's like, this is great. And they're in this, like, Quaker meeting, and somebody's upset about this thing that's happening in the society, and somebody brings – and he's like, what are we going to do about it? And they're like, nothing. And he's like, <laughs> when you guys get into power, you better figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he storms out, and it is so funny. <laughs> it's a beautiful show. I'm gonna have to catch up on this. This this is one of those every year it ends up on a lot of people's best of best of the year list, and I every single time I think like oh, I gotta I gotta watch it. And the thing is like right now it's watching TV, especially if you have all the streaming services. It's an embarrassment of riches. There's too oh, many it's things. So this is, and in fact, we'll we'll get into the next uh, item on our list is True Detective, which I this is this is a weird. This is a thing that is very uncharacteristic for me. I I only have watched the third season because it, it is it is very unusual for me to watch a show beginning oh. not not at the beginning. But I was told that the first season was really good, the second season was really bad. And I love the second season. Uh, well, that's good. But I I had only heard good good for the first season, bad for the second season. Then the third season was a story unto itself. And was also very good. So I decided I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother with the because if I watch the first season, I will feel compelled to watch the second season, and I don't want to have to go through all that just to watch the third season, which apparently is the story all by itself anyway. So I watched the third season, starring Mahershala Ali as the main character. And Dude, I will do anything for Mahershala Ali. He is unbelievable in the show. I if he does not get nominated for some kind of award for his portrayal of this character in three different decades. I don't even know what to say about the state of the world as it is today. He he is so good in this show, and I, I'm I'm thrilled that he's cat he's been cast as Blade the Vampire Hunter yes. for the MCU. Yes. That and basically and apparently like that was him. Like apparently he walked into Kevin Feige's office the day after he won his Oscar for Green Book and was like, "I want to be Blade." <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, all right." So uh, good for it's you, incredible. man. Incredible. Um, he uh he was in like Luke Cage and great. Yeah, he was. He was Cottonmouth in Luke Cage. Right? Yeah, he's, oh, Luke Cage he, is so good. I did not like Green Book, but he is—he's good in everything. He like yeah. The, even in even in movies that I don't like, I can appreciate that he's bringing a, a really good performance. And he's he was really, in the, really the good newest here. edition of EA Sports's Madden Football video game. And I hate football, and I almost got the game just so I could play the story mode because really? he's like the dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, he is—he is great. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of his, and I thought. This the the season of in fact I liked this season of True Detective so much that I may have to go back and watch the first two. I, I may actually, especially now that you're saying you like the second season, I may just like bite the bullet and just watch it. Go so, in reverse because season one's really great, and but just watch season two without having seen season one, you might actually like it. So you don't like season two uh, is totally divorced from season one. Just, so like they're all yeah. like short films basically. Or they're all totally stories. different. Yeah, interesting. The, the thing about the thing about TV right now is TV right now is what movies used to be. 
like 20 years ago, which is like they're yeah. really interesting, engaging original stories by really com- like uh, capable writers and directors. Because I feel like as I was watching True Detective, I kept thinking, or, or Watchmen or any of these other things, I kept thinking like 20 years ago, this would have been like the best movie of the year. And now it's just a weekly show that I watch, you know? Yeah. And, but because like TV has gotten better and, and movies have gotten more like commercialized and more uh, all about IP. So things like this tend to not make it to the Cineplex or to the movie theater. And so I, I really, really loved True Detective season three. And so I'm, I'm hearing, so it sounds like you also have, have watched season three. Oh yeah. Detective. It's great. I, I don't even know what to say about it. Like just the whole, the concept and the construct and the mystery of it and the darkness. It's very, very dark, but it is. Oh my gosh, man! I it's been a while, but I really want to go back and rewatch it. I I was I found it just utterly compelling. Uh, yeah, and then the <laughs> the final item on our TV list is When They See Us, which is the Ava DuVernay five part miniseries about the Central Park Five. This is another movie that probably twenty years ago would have been a, yeah. a movie. You've not watched this? No, but I, I've got to see that. I love uh, what she did with Thirteenth. Um, yeah, this yeah. is rough. I'm not gonna lie. Like this is. It's hard, like to to watch basically children get abused and torn up by the criminal justice system, and then basically have their entire lives ruined and shaped by this one thing that they were later exonerated for. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It is really hard to watch. But then this is a story. This is one of those stories. Like this needs to be told. This is an important story, and it's important that it, it's good that Ava DuVernay took the time and the resources to make this. I'm glad that she's using her capital and her influence to, to tell these really, really important stories that maybe we're not telling that we should be. And uh, just, and for those who don't know, the central park five were a, a group of five young black teenage boys in, um, I want to say the early nineties who were um, falsely accused of beating and raping a woman in central park. And then later were, were exonerated by the crime somebody like DNA. They were exonerated both by DNA evidence, but also by the confession of uh, the person who actually had done the thing. And, uh, and that they spent so much time in prison and that their lives to this day, they they will never be the same. Like that they had to yeah. like, each individually leave the state of New York in order to like find some semblance of normalcy, even after they were exonerated. The is, season three of true detective has some serious West Memphis three vibes, which is a very similar story. Oh, you're right. It absolutely does. Yeah. The, and uh, I mean, it, it doesn't have the racial component, the West right. Memphis three, but, but it is sort of the same, like the, just the amount of like when we get these kinds of things wrong and we, we put these, the stamp of pariah and predator on a person who, um, when we when we judge people too quickly, like and, and yeah. uh, that, well, they like, had like sort of the satanic panic pariah on them. Not that that compares necessarily one to one, but it is sort of a similar mindset that the the persecutors had. Yeah, well, and that that was a real thing too in the eighties, the the satanic panic and the idea that any like it wasn't just like watch out for predators. It was like they're Satan worshippers and they're going to sacrifice your children to a goat god or something. And yeah. uh, like I, there there definitely was that near my home. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and there like right outside of town, there were all sorts of rumors about like there's this one spot where people would take like baby goats and like kidnap children and like would sacrifice them. And like all of that was complete bullcrap, but it was a thing that a lot of people believed and it drove a lot of paranoia. And like, yeah, you're right. True detective really delves into sort of that paranoia, but then also, so then like back into when they see us, it, this is a story that deep, that humanizes a, a group of people who needed to be rehumanized in the public consciousness because of what they went through. And um, I think, I think Ava DuVernay is just, is doing God's work 
in yeah, how, she absolutely how is. what stories she's deciding to tell. So, um, and I mean, it, it's a heavy watch. I would not recommend binge watching the whole thing in one sitting, but um, definitely take the time on Netflix to go catch up with when they see us. And oh, it did win a uh, an Emmy. Like there was one Emmy that it, that it won, it, and it was an acting Emmy for the guy. I can't remember the name of the actor, but he plays uh, the character Corey Wise, who um, really had the worst time while he was incarcerated of, of the five of them. And um, he, his performance alone is stunning. I mean, he, he's just really, really good. And again, I, I cannot recommend this, this series highly enough when they see us. All right, so let's talk about music. The first thing we have on our list is The High Women, which is an album by yes. The High Women, which is a super group uh, formed oh. by Amanda Shires and Brandi Carlisle. And, uh, was the, and they added Maren Morris and Natalie Hemby. So it's the, the four yeah. of them, each, each with their own um, career in country music on their own. And so they came together to create a super group and this album is amazing. So I remember finding out about this on like Amanda Shires or Jason Isbell's Instagram. I saw that the band members were getting high women tattoos yeah. and I was just like, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm a huge Amanda Shires fan. Uh, she like, when I found out about her, I was like, all right, Jason Isbell's cool, but Amanda Shires is up to no good and I'm for it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like, if you follow her on Instagram, she's always up to something. And uh, I'm a huge, huge Brandy Carlisle fan. Watching like Amanda always stirring something up and always trying to stir up some trouble. Whenever I saw her, like she was going to this dude with Brandy Carlisle, I was like, I can't wait. I mean, the amount, like I waited what was it, like six months or a year or something for that. And I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, they promoted and teased this for a long time. And they, they would like show yeah. like press photos or studio photos. And um, I mean, really, the anticipation for this could not have been higher. Like Amanda Shires and Brandy Carlisle alone have a lot of. Like they have a lot of social currency in the country music world, and then Marin Morris has her own. Like I, I didn't know who Marin Morris was, but apparently she's like basically like the Taylor Swift of country music. So like she, um, <laughs> that's I, a funny sentence. <laughs> which is funny because Taylor Swift was once a country music star. I'm just not realizing. Yeah. But oh, um, country music. like apparently she she had her own career. Uh, she was a one of the more successful. I mean, arguably maybe the most successful of the four of them. Um, because she was getting a lot of radio play on country music, even before on country radio, even before they released this album, um, which is kind of interesting because Amanda Shires and Brandy Carlisle have made their names like in opposition to the country music establishment. Yeah, like they, they sort of, act, sort of protest it. Yeah, and uh, like and has a lyric um, in one of his songs, "Mama tried to change the Nashville sound, but they're never going to let her." Which is, is about his wife. And she wore, he, she took his passes to the CMA Music Awards a couple years ago with a shirt on that said, Mama tried to cha- Mama's trying to change the Nashville sound. Oh, nice. I love yeah. that. And so, like, when they teamed up with Mary Morris, I didn't know about her either. When I found out about her, I was like, oh, oh, so they're, they're this is a bipartisan effort. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and then Natalie Hemby, who was not a recording artist, she was a songwriter. She was a, right. mainly Miranda Lambert's songwriter. Yeah. And then she ended up joining the group too. So, like, even, so yeah, you've got like this this pop country sort of starlet. You've got this behind the scenes songwriter, and then you've got Brandy Carlisle, who kind of is like, I mean, kind of the heir apparent to like country royalty. And then Amanda Shires, who, like you said, is trying to change the national sound. And they all come together, and they really they made an album that is very special. It's so good, and uh, I love. Uh... Anytime Jason Isbell like tweets about it, he'll say, you know, say thanks to these, uh, uh, thanks to my awesome bosses for letting me turn my guitar up as loud as I wanted to today. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, and, and when you see them perform, Jason Isbell is in the band. This is like you're looking at this this power group, these these four women, these four incredibly talented women singing these songs, yeah. and you look right behind them, and you're like, is that is that Jason Isbell is in that the, the band? Most famous songwriter 
on the planet right now. Arguably our shadows. generation's greatest songwriter. And he's just yeah. back there in the band. He he just finished a record. I can't wait. I'm I'm so excited oh. that this time next year we'll be talking about whatever Jason Isbell did in 2020. I know. Um well yeah. and and he and Amanda co-wrote a song for the High Women specifically so that Brandy Carlisle would sing it. And it's the song Is She Ever Leaves Me, which is a lesbian love song, and it is so good. It is so, so good. It's one of the best songs on the album. Yeah, man. I love If She Ever Leaves Me, Wills of Laredo, High Women. Obviously, Redesigning Women, the single's great. But they also did a cover of The Chain. Yes. By oh, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Oh, man. It is it is as good as the Fleetwood Mac version. It is very good. Well, and then they, um, they have Old Soul, which is one of the Marion Morris songs, which I think is one of the best songs on the record. Um, yeah. it's, I well, mean, here's it's the, the thing. I think that uh, Yola's uh, line in the High Women, the the title track, the first track, I think it's probably the best vocal line on the record. <laughs> she like line? sings the second verse, right? Yeah, or third yeah. verse. Yeah, but yeah, uh, High Women is great because like one of the greatest country songs of all time was the Highway Men, the Highway Men. Yeah, which is like all the all the greats sing like doing a quartet. And we have a guy in town who does everybody's voice when he covers a song. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so they change it to instead of the high women, they're the high women. Yeah. And they um, they change the lyrics but play the high the song the high women. Um, it's great. It's fantastic. It's so it good. Is, it, it's a great opening track, and the entire album is really really strong. I I think, and we've talked about Brandy Carlisle here before. In fact, last year Brandy Carlisle made what I thought was the best album of 2018. So here we are in 2019 talking about how Brandy Carlisle cool. again is one of the figureheads of the greatest album of this year. And we opinion. talked about the Firewatcher's Daughter in the first episode, ever episode of this. Did we? I think we did. I thought I think that album predates this podcast. Does it? I thought we did. I've talked about it a lot since then. So I mean, it's a good album, but I, I, yeah. I think that album pre- existed before 2015? we... 2015? Did we not even into the year 2015? We started this in 2016. Oh, that's right. All right. We Never almost mind. made it. But yeah, I think Brandy Carlisle is is one of those people who will be at, at a certain point will be sort of like the, one of the undeniable greats, and she's she's on her way. And like I said, like I thought her album last year, by the way, I forgive you, was the best album of 2018. I think the High mm. Women is the best album of 2019. So Brandy Carlisle and Jason Isbell together are like holding the trophy to come in combined are holding the trophy three years in a row. Cause Jason yeah. has blessed some songwriting credits on this record. So high women, in my opinion is the best album of 2019. Would you agree with that? Or do you have another, I, I did not rank any because they're all, I don't know. This year was weird to me and they were all so different and nothing was what I expected it to be. You know, like I just am so happy to have had some really great records. Well, speaking of that, talk about Texas Piano Man by Robert Ellis. Oh, this is one of the ones that you listened to the first time today, right? Yes, I just started listening to this album today, and I bought it. I listened to it twice on Amazon uh, Music, and I was like, I'm just going to buy this. This this deserves to be a, to be purchased. So, so Robert Ellis, uh, I had never heard of before, and he's just like one of those like classic Austin, Texas songwriter guys, you know, who everybody in Austin knows about, just like South Congress, you know, representative. And uh, he was on the Dax Shepard Armchair Expert, Dax Shepard, Monica Pavin podcast on that live from Austin, Texas episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Brene Brown. And he played this song that we made to believe the title of called Fucking Crazy. And it's about how crazy you can love it. So it's like. Uh, it's the opening track um, of this album. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an opening track, and it's like, I'm fucking crazy, crazy in love. Uh, it's about how crazy you get when you're in love with people. And his vocals are so good. Like, this, they make me, like, swoon and laugh all at once. Yeah. And his piano, he's an incredible piano player. He's, like, virtuosic, you know? His voice is so good. The lyrics are profound but not heavy-handed. It's like if your therapist ended every session with a lighthearted joke that you realize like later revealed something about yourself that was previously only known to your subconscious. <laughs> and then like the drumming and bass and guitar are insane. It's just this absolutely killer Texas Hill Country swing with this wonderful pop sensibility and this sort of big he's Robert Ellis is like this big band leader, party host kind of vibe. Like it's very much a studio album, but there's enough sort of like in the room miking and sort of like, you know, wooing in the background or there's a song about like how much he regrets having to quit smoking and like he lights up at the end of the song and you hear the lighter and stuff and it's such a good record it's so much fun yeah uh, it, it is really good it's very pleasant and like i said i'd never heard of this like i i listened to a lot of albums and quite frankly this year i was mostly underwhelmed by a lot of the things that i heard like my yeah. uh, the things we're mentioning here today but like all all the algorithm all the algorithms and all the the software that was recommending music to me never once pointed me towards this album. And this album is really good. And th yeah, this, this to me is the reason why you need people in your life who will recommend good things and not just computer software. So JB, thank you so much for pointing me towards this album. I really, really like it. Yeah, man. And I can't wait to share something that someone shared with me this year uh, here in a minute that, uh, so we'll, we'll keep going through this, but that's, that's what makes this great. Yeah. So then uh, we have the next uh, album is On the Line by Jenny Lewis. So you uh, put this on here. Uh, I did. But I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm here for Jenny Lewis. Anything Jenny Lewis. Jenny Lewis is so, great. Yeah, in fact. I think I talked to, well, no, that was before we started. The Voyager was definitely my favorite record of 2014. Well, The Voyager, uh, uh, well, um, Pitchfork Magazine just put out the best of the, of the decade, and The Voyager is on it. And yeah. that's hard to deny. The Voyager is a really good album. And th yeah. this album, I don't know. I haven't quite decided if this album is as good as the Voyager, but it's very good. I really, I really, really like on, I think Jenny Lewis is, um, I think, I think Jenny Lewis is one of the better songwriters working right now. I think she's, she's got a lot of talent and yeah. she, she, I think she has something to say. And and it's interesting. Her her background is really interesting. And I, I don't know if anybody who knows knows who Jenny Lewis is, but Jenny Lewis started out as a child actor. She was in in the movie. Most famously, she was in the movie Troop Beverly Hills, uh, playing oh. uh, Shelley Long's daughter as a like a Girl Scout type person. And um, and then later on, as she got older, she began she became a musician and she fronted the band Rilo Kylie. And yeah. then she broke off and became a solo artist, which is who we have recording now with uh on the line and the voyager before that and on the line th this is a, a really i think this is a really nice follow-up to the voyager i think this is a very good album yeah so one thing i like about this one is so she's always been sort of like this dreamy manic pixie dream girl uh kind of figure in indie music sort of like this indie music darling her voice is dreamy and it's set like her voice has reverb on it before you ever put reverb on it yeah um and she is just like she is just like the hollywood magic filter on a lens like just that's what she sounds like mm. and um she's always just been like this cool like the cool cute girl who's like in the cool indie band and the record cover for this album dropped and like the last one was fun and dreamy but it's got her bright red hair in it and you're like oh she's so adorable this one is like the cover is decidedly um like adult not like in a not adult like pornographic but just like she's wearing like a very 
sexy cocktail dress. Well, it's and her hair is like way more adult than in her last record. But it's the same framing of her as her last record. So I was going like, to say, it definitely looks like a follow-up. Like, it's exactly the same shot, just with a different outfit. Right, with a different outfit and a different haircut. Yeah. And I, when the record cover dropped, I was like, oh, damn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just wasn't expecting it to come across my desk, you know, that day. I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Okay. And then it's also a decidedly more adult record. Um, She's just, like, dealing with some stuff. And it's – but it's also got some more pop sensibility to it. Uh, Head's Gonna Roll and – Red Bull and Hennessy is like those songs are awesome. Yeah, and Red Bull and Hennessy was the single, like that was the lead-off single that they used to promote this record, and it, it's yeah. it is a good song. You're right, and there's I, I don't even know if I can name like the the MVP song of this record. I think there's like you said, Red Bull and Hennessy and Heads Gonna Roll. There's a couple of songs on this record that I'm like, yeah, that's good, man. That's that that's a solid solid piece yeah. of work. And we're, Party we're clown, wasted youth. It's great. And this is one of those albums that even like years from now, I'm sure I'll be able to look back on and remember, like I I won't be able to remember most of the albums that I listened to in 2019, but I definitely will remember this one. This is a, it's very strong. So then she has a, one of her first records was called acid tongue. And that's kind of how I feel like her, her music is just sort of like honey in a psychedelic world, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I like Jenny Lewis. I, I tend to, I mean, it's funny. I, I don't know why, but I always feel like I'm surprised when she puts something new out because I, I tend to not uh, up until this record, I tend to not think about her all that much, and then she puts out an album, and I'm like, wow, I I didn't realize how much I wanted a Jenny Lewis record, and yeah. I think now with on the line, I think like I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna continue waiting. Like, I, she, well, she's in in 11 years, she's put out four records. It's not yeah. like you're waiting. You know, she's not as prolific as your Wilco's and the Nationals who have been around for this long and are still putting records out every couple of years. You know. I was going to say, man, the national, this one snuck past me. I, um, let, let's moving on to the next al- uh, album on the list. We've got, Oh, I am, the next one. I didn't even plan that. No, that was perfect transition. So the next album on the list is I am easy to find by the national. I totally missed until very recently. The fact that the national even had a new album this year, it was yeah. not promoted at all in any no. sort of way that I, I follow. And their last one is promoted more than any other one has been. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because like, they kind of got, a little bit more experimental with this one. Like they brought in a lot of different vocals. Like, you, like really yeah. the national up until now has been mostly defined by Matt Berninger's vocals. And drone, this, low drone. Yeah. Just like, um, but then yeah. this album, they sounds like a guy who's drinking a lot of wine out of a solo cup. Yeah. It, it, Probably because he's a guy who's very... drinking like a lot of wine out of a solo cup. <laughs> yeah. And so what they did with this one was they, they kept all the musical sensibilities, but they brought in like a bunch of guest vocalists, like mostly female vocalists to to sing on national songs so like this it really highlights the musicians and kind of diverts attention away from matt burninger's vocal which is sort of the thing that everybody knows the national from so this while while what the focus on the music but i also loved getting to hear matt he didn't sound like the kind of guy that you want to do harmonies with a lot you know but he does some really cool duets in this record yeah and i mean it was pretty brave and pretty generous of him to hand over the platform and the spotlight to other vocalists, you know, which is funny because he, he, he seems like a very exacting guy. He wants to project the uh, ideal that he's more like open to collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you get the same feeling? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially like, after oh, I'm totally into collaboration if we do it this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially after having watched that documentary that is oh. made, you know, like the uh, mistaken for strangers, which mistaken is, really for strangers good is so good and so heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, 
it's insane, sort of the picture it paints. Yeah, it really uh, is. So he seems like so a good cute. guy, but yeah, he definitely seems like a guy who knows what he wants from his art. Yeah, I, I love the Nationals. Just to me, it is restfulness, and um, always has been. And he even talks about that sometimes in interviews about what kind of what he looks for in his music and his lyrics. And um, I was reminded uh, last week, my baby girl Austin is teething, and my cure for Shep when he was teething was to to play the National and sing it to him because it was like the droning music and me singing along with the low voice and the low rumble in my chest. I could get him to like. I could soothe him when he was teething if I just walked around the kitchen with that playing on our speakers. Mm. And so I was reminded that whenever I was walking Austin around last week with her teething and I was like, cause April said, I don't know what to do. And I said, Oh, I actually have sort of a go-to move. <laughs> she hates <laughs> the national. Oh, does she, she really? hates the national. Oh, that's very funny. Uh, and I was like, Alexa, play the national on everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So, and and I, I was excited about this, too, and I was excited about Wilco. It was just sort of the same category of, like, white dad excitement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one, to me, was more restful and had nice guest vocals and stuff. I love the new Wilco record, but it didn't it didn't do anything new for me, you know? The music video where yeah. they play hide-and-seek, but really Jeff Tweedy's just eating popcorn at the practice space. <laughs> I totally understand. What do you go for Christmas? Just a peace and quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you say on, on this album, on I Am Easy to Find, what would you say are like the one or two standout tracks for you? Uh, let me look at this track list real quick. I would say I, I love it starts off great with You Had Your Soul With You. Yeah. Um, I like I Am Easy to Find and I like Hairpin Turns a lot. I think I like Underwater a lot. Um, but the National, I mean, they have like I Should Live in Salt. I Need My Girl, Corinne at the Liquor Store. Those are the only three songs, you know, that I <laughs> Besides those songs, like I just want to listen to one of their records. I don't want to listen to a, one of the songs, but I, have, I like. Yeah, I have that too. I like, uh, yeah, I like um, maybe four of their songs as singles, uh, and I don't know if this record really has any of them on it, except for maybe "You Had Your Soul with You" because it's got that great, just very iconic sort of Nationals feeling drumming. We just got to saw that syncopated snare. Did they tour on this? Do like, they tour with female vocalists? I have no idea. This was this is the most secretive like did they promote this and I just didn't realize it? Um I don't know. I, don't, I, I just found it like cuz I follow them on Spotify and I got an email. I was going to say said, it's hey. very rare that a band that I actively follow can release an album without me realizing it. And that, that's, right. that's yeah. what happened here. It's weird. Speaking of yes. Bands that you follow who just release something out of nowhere. Yeah. You put on your list Better Oblivion Community Center. I did. This is another super group. Yeah. Phoebe Bridgers, Connor Oberst, and the second super group we've got on the list. Yeah. And I mean, holy cow. This is a very good album. Did you know this was going to happen? No. You know how I found out about it? I'm a a member of the Magnolia Record Club, which is a record of the month uh, club (laughs) that's curated by an artist named Drew Holcomb, who also put out an album this year. And this came in the mail. I'd never heard of this before. And just one day, this showed up in my mailbox or not in my mailbox, but on my doorstep. And I opened it and I was like, what is this? And I put it on and it's really good. So Phoebe Bridgers is part of two of my top 100 records of all time. Yeah. Connor Oberst, Oberst is a part of two of my all time favorite records of all time. And then they put this bad boy together. But both in previous supergroups, Phoebe Bridgers yeah. was in um, boy genius and Connor Oberst was in monsters of folk. And he had bright eyes, which is also sort of a folk supergroup. Yeah. Now, it was just a band then. 
but all those people have gone on to be in so many other super groups. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah. So this, yeah. this is sort and of like a Clash band, of the Titans. He was in this band called Desa Parasitos. It was like his punk band from back in Omaha. And then they, they did a record like 15 years ago, and then they did a 10-year anniversary record a couple years ago. And they're awesome. Connor Roberts might be responsible for like four of five of my favorite records. I, I can totally see that. So so better so how did this happen? I don't even know the origin story for how these two people got together. I don't know. When I first heard about it, I just it was kind of on the heels of like the Phoebe Bridgers, Ryan Adams stuff. And I was like, oh, Great. Right. Yes. Like the first headline I saw was just like, Great. <laughs> I thought Connor Roberts was one of the good ones. And then I saw that it was just this incredible record and I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Phoebe Bridgers named Ryan Adams as a Basically, a predator uh, earlier this year, and yeah. uh, Mandy Moore, along right with now, other people, previous, yeah, Mandy Moore spouse, uh, kind of backed up her her claims. And Phoebe Bridgers, by the way, is significantly younger than Ryan Adams. Yeah, she's significantly younger than everyone who's older than twenty. <laughs> yeah, she's very young. Which, by the way, no, I didn't realize how young Phoebe Bridgers was until all the stories started coming out, which made me like doubly impressed by how like her output so far she she's i mean already has is responsible for a pretty impressive body of work she, so on her last yeah she has a song called motion sickness the second track on her album strangers in the alps which is about ryan adams which like in hindsight duh right uh but yeah dude uh this better oblivion community center is a just an incredible piece of art are there any are there any songs that stand out to you from this i mean it starts out great didn't know what i was in for yeah He's got just that sort of like Connor Oberst production sensibility, but also it's really empty, kind of like a lot of the Fear Bridger stuff, which is her and the acoustic guitar. But Connor brings in some sort of instrumentation that's really folky, like uh, Bright Eyes, which is his band. And then uh, she's singing just with her, her huge, uh, her voice in a microphone sounds like anyone else singing in a cathedral, you know, like just echoing off the walls of her throat. Like yeah, she's very strong. Will. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, I've never heard someone sing um, so softly, so bigly. Like, and I've seen her at the Ryman Theater. She filled the place up. Yeah. She did an incredible job. And, uh, yeah, it's just, oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, man, it, it's a it's, it's a really strong album. And it, it, it like I said, it's one of those that sort of, like, snuck up on me. And it really it caught me by surprise. And I, I think they co-wrote all of the songs together. That and, seems like their brand, big time. Yeah, except for uh, track ten, Dominoes was written by Taylor Hongsworth. Everything else has the two of them uh, have gives both of them a songwriting credit. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's a good record, and if you like like folk rock and um, which I know a lot of our listeners do, this is a good. I, I mean, it's it's just very strong, good songwriting, good performances. Their their voices, I think, really complement each other. Oh my gosh! I and I would I was so surprised at how much I love their voices together. Yeah, yeah, because they it, both have such distinct and unique voices. You know, they do. But but, but because and maybe because both of them are so comfortable in collaborate uh, collaboration, which is why they keep kind mm. of ending up in supergroups with with other people. Uh, they they seem to really work together really nicely, and I I hope they do more together. I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of this collaboration. Yeah, and the song Dylan Thomas is like just a blast. Dylan, yeah, I think that may be my favorite song on the record. Yeah. It's really good. All right, the next three are albums that I had never heard previous to today. So the the next one is Young Enough by Charlie Bliss. Tell me, you tell me 
how pumped you were to hear this for the first time today. This was good. I, I heard, I put it on and like within, before the end of the first song, I was thinking like, this reminds me a lot of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Reminds me a lot of the Go-Go's. Oh yeah, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Well, that's very the thing is like, it's very, they're all theater kids, you know? And the Yeah Yeah Yeahs were all like weird experimental artists, you know, in New York. So like, it's kind of got that. It's got a, like that female vocal, like pop punk kind of sensibility. Yeah. And but when you first heard her voice, were you just like, I don't know? And then two minutes later, you're like, oh, I'm so in for this. I can't, well, I mean, your, I mean, not to butter your bread too much, but like your recommendation goes a long way. So like, I, I did not enter any of this with skepticism. I, I right. entered this mostly with like, oh, this is probably some good stuff that I just don't know about. And, and so that by makes the end me of happy the, to hear. Oh, good. I'm glad. So they call themselves Bubble Grunge. Oh, I like that. That's really Which good. Which is perfect. Her voice sounds like a Barbie doll wrapped up in chewed up bubble gum. <laughs> she plays a super crunchy Fender Mustang and is often on stage wearing a tutu, and that's exactly what she sounds like. Mm. She's just like playing this crunchy Fender Mustang, just like rah, 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 like just grungy, but she has like this just this saccharine sweet voice that is just infectious. Um, everyone I've ever showed this record to cringed for the first couple seconds and then just was in love after that. I don't think and, I cringed. I think I, I I think I was on board from from the first song. Well, it was that it was that stellar JB Clark recommendation that you put so that, much faith. That in. does help, that, without a doubt. That does help. And I was really proud of them for this record. I don't know that I loved it more than their first record, but it's different. It's way less punk. It plays a lot more with some of the darker sides of pop. If you think about like um, Britney Spears' Toxic, uh, I feel them kind of playing with some of that here. Yeah. And uh, and they're really just growing and changing and getting weirder and better and not being scared of what people are going to say when the next record is the same as the last one. Uh, but they still kept those junky guitar tones. So it's like it's just rooted in these just kids who want to jump up and down and smile really big while they play like super crunchy riffs. But they also want to make really good art. And so they they just weave in and out of that so seamlessly. And I can't speak highly enough of their audio tree session, which is how I found out about them. This is really good. I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this. And again, like there's not an algorithm in the world that would point me towards this record and that you did. And that I was able to like listen to the first three songs and just be like, this is great. This is better than most of the stuff I listened to this year. It was really good. I showed a bunch of a friend, a bunch of bands I've been listening to lately. And this wasn't an algorithm, but it just happened. I, I like to follow a couple places like audio tree and just try everything they, they put out. Uh huh. Um, even if it's not necessarily my cup of tea, I'll, I'll give it, you know, one song at least to listen. That way I get exposed to this kind of thing. And I showed a guy a few of the latest ones I've listened to. And he was like, okay, so you're into like female fronted shoegaze bands where the lead singer plays a Fender Mustang. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Right. Hit and I like head. Mustang because, uh, Ben Gibbard plays a Fender Mustang for Death Cab. So, you know, I like a good Fender Mustang. Yeah. All right, now the uh, next two I did not get a chance to listen to. So the next oh. one you have on your list is uh, Pony by Orville Peck. So this is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, Alex Payenda, I think I pronounced that correctly, um, recommended this. Okay. Uh, he is a uh, longtime friend of the show. He's the first friend of the – maybe the second or third friend of the show. I think Jesse Jacks is the first friend of the show. Uh, and so he he just reached out. He was like, hey, check this out. And so I did. Um, also host of Arcade and, Fire Sings the Alphabet, another podcast. Yes. Which is a great podcast. Yes. Uh, probably, probably a more successful version of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, so Orville wears a Lone Ranger mask with lots of fringe hanging down over his face. I did look at the uh, album cover. The album cover of this is bizarre. 
<laughs> yeah, so he released this record anonymously, and, but it's since been mostly confirmed that he's Canadian punk rocker Daniel uh, Pintau. Pintu? Pin, uh-huh. Pintau? Uh, anyway, he's got this huge rhinestone Nashville, Las Vegas country voice and plays with the standard images of masculinity in country music and his own sexuality as a gay man. And on top of all that, has this huge voice. It's like the opera version of like rhinestone nashville slash las oh, vegas country i did i listened to to the first two tracks on this you're right i i completely forgot it was like josh groban does like like r- country rock yeah and it's and uh so I, I listened to it uh you know early on when alex recommended it and i thought it was great and i kind of just filed it away didn't come back to it that much and then i saw um this video of him playing in chicago at i think shubas and while I was kind of debating whether or not to put this on the list, and he is so full of charisma and chutzpah, and his voice is so incredible, and his band is so much fun. I've just watched I've watched these three songs uh, live like like five or six times. It's oh, just wow. just playing a just a giant white Gretsch jet guitar. His band's so cool. He's having so much fun. Man, I gotta find that. His voice is insane. Uh, I think I put it in the Slack channel. Oh, nice. Uh, just in the general channel. It's uh, it's it's righteous, man. And no one's doing it. You know what I mean? Like he's just he's doing something totally new with something super old. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's it's very much in line with like the High Women record. That's yeah. That's definitely one I'm gonna have to spend some more time with. I, I totally until you started describing it, I totally forgot that I did sample some of the songs on this. And you're right. Like I did. It definitely was exactly that. Yeah. Um, oh, his voice is so big. It is so. It is Elvis. Oh, it is so big. So then, uh, the the last one we've got on the list is "Morbid Stuff" by Pup. Yeah, Pup. So they put out some good stuff in 2016. That's how they got on my radar. And uh, but this album just like kicks so much ass out of the gate. Um, may, can do we? Can I say a bleep button word? Man, you I mean, why not? Well, I'll right, put the cool. explicit tag on this so people will right. have themselves to blame. So one of the first lines on the record is, I was bored as fuck sitting around thinking about all this morbid stuff. <laughs> and it's just like these huge guitars and cymbals and this great drumming and gang vocals. And But as tough and as punk as they are, like talking about getting all these fights and stuff, they're also like wonderfully Canadian and really just like earnest and kind. My friend saw him in Portland and he was like, they were just so tough, like these like such tough guy punk. And then they were like, hey, uh, we're thinking about doing some crowd surfing. Is that okay with everybody in the crowd? Like uh, if we, you know, invade your personal space a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but there's this line in the second verse that brings me back to the like, 2019 being the summer. I mean, the year of on the nose, uh, this line, she said, I'm sick of it all. Your little games are getting old. Your little songs are getting way too literal. How about some GD subtlety for a change? <laughs> <laughs> and I just love it. Uh, because so many of my favorite unlisted records this year are so on the nose. And I feel like artists abandoned subtlety in 2019. Cause it feels like society can't see past the metaphor right now. And, um, yeah, man, it's it's great. Morbid stuff is great. I I, I tweeted out tonight. Um, this this uh, hang on, let me pull up Twitter real quick. But I I tweeted out tonight. I have I have therapy tomorrow, and I'm excited because I'm doing good, and my medicine is working. And sometimes it feels good to have a professional say you're doing good when you've been working so hard just to be all right. <laughs> and like this record was the the journey. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was it was getting there. <laughs> and so uh, I, I sort of had this thought, like, may all your struggles be light and may all of y'all feel all right. <laughs> um, and that's how I feel like morbid stuff. That's what this record is to me. 
and it made me really happy because last year there was a record a lot like this that came out and then like a lot of really bad stuff came out about the lead singer and i just can't listen to it because it's so raw um that it's i can't separate it at all from like the artists from the actions you know what i mean like what, and, what do you mean like um like predator kinds of stuff like what we've been yeah doing. yeah and it's just like it's so it's such an emotionally raw record that it, it just feels too close to the subject matter to um to eat you know what i mean it just feels like something that was so close to me was like ripped away from me and then this record came out yeah uh, so, and kind of filled that space for me because because it was something i i didn't want to be a part of when i found out about you know a lot of the accusations with Lee singer and some of the stuff he said and so um but I, I needed something I needed something like that to be a part of mm. something that says I'm not doing OK, but I'm trying to do OK. And I think I'm going to be OK. Um, one of those kind of records. Well, these all sound like really good stocking stuffers. I, w- I would imagine I, I don't know how close to Christmas we will be when this uh, when this episode drops, but hopefully it'll be with enough time for somebody to run out and grab a couple of these things to either buy them, treat themselves with a with a new gift card or to hand off to somebody else. Yeah, these are these are all incredible records. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I hope everyone gets gets or gives at least one copy of the High Women uh, before the end of the year. Well, and hey, you had two records on here that we cut. You cut because you didn't want to spend too much time because this is already a really long episode. We're already like two hours in. Yeah, but I I want at least at the very least, and if you feel like spend some time, let's do it. But at the very least, I want some honorable mentions because those records are fantastic oh yeah thanks man yeah i i did i because i i mentioned to jb that usually this is where the episode starts to drag a little bit because we're a little over time i think we're doing okay today though so um yeah one was good luck kid by joseph which is mm. their their second album it's the, it's a trio of sisters uh and this is a re- I, I really like this album i i like this band uh they have a cover of um moonlight mile by the rolling stones which i think yeah. is just haunting and beautiful and this album is it's a really good follow-up to their to their first album i'm I'm a i'm a yeah i'm just a fan of of these these three uh musicians i i'm I'm glad they're they're doing what they're doing so is that that song green eyes is good yeah that song green eyes is good their last record i'm alone no you're not is also really good but they have blood harmonies man in a big way it's like an older sister and her two younger twin sisters i mean so like yeah it's not uh, like the Avett brothers, where, which is like the reason they're so good together is because they grew up in church singing like tr- like trios, you know, in, in at church services, and they just that's that's where they learn to do this, and they're just really really good. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Well, then you had one other record on your list that you cut, the uh, Maggie Rogers record. Yes, I, I man, uh, now it's, I'm totally blanking on what the actual name of the record was, but it's a really good album. Um, yeah, it's by Ma- it. Maggie Rogers. What's the name of that album? It's called Heard It in a Past Life. Heard It in a Past Life, yes. This is another one that came to me through the Magnolia Record Club. And it's um it's it's really poppy. And Maggie Rogers is a good songwriter. Man, she can she can write a hook, you know. Yeah, she's a crazy story. I heard about so there's a song on here, Alaska, track four, that came out like years ago. And this video of like Pharrell visiting the class, like doing grading the finals of a class, a music class at NYU or something like that. And he cried when he heard this song. And they both talked about how they both have synesthesia, so like they the sound this they could see this song happening around them. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah, she's a crazy story. Uh, but this record's been brewing. A lot of people have been watching her with anticipation for this record for a long time, and I think a lot of them were happy with it. I'm happy with it. It, it th- this was again like I'd never heard of her, and then this album came in the mail, and I put it on. And the first time I listened to it, I was like, I don't really know what this is. But by like the third or fourth listen. 
I I was pretty sold on her as an artist. I'll, I will look for this is I think this is her first album, and uh, I will definitely watch for her in future releases. Yeah, the song Alaska makes me just just like cry. Yeah, it's good, and and really the whole album holds up. There's there, it doesn't really sag at all. Like every every track really kind of um, makes a case for itself. I think on on the album. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, those are those are good honorable mentions. Do you have any other honorable mentions since we're doing this? Um, I mean, I realize like you that we to haven't a talked about albums. throughout the year. Yeah, yeah, we're we're good. We're good. I mean, yeah, I've got like I've got like fifty other albums, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's talk about podcasts. So you have Reply All, which I think the Reply All is the only podcast that's made an appearance on every one of these uh, it, end of the year episodes. It just is so good every year. <laughs> <laughs> they put uh the beginning of the year like they got bought out their company got bought out by spotify and a lot of people were worried that it wasn't going to be good anymore and some people think it isn't i didn't realize uh, that gimlet got bought out by spotify oh yeah oh cool and um and the hosts are just incredible and they start the year out with this uh episode called the year of the wallop <laughs> and uh, where one of them says he started a boxing class because he wants to know what it feels like to get knocked out <laughs> 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 and uh but they had jason manzoukas on to talk about harry potter and a harry potter related tweet that they couldn't figure out oh <laughs> i jason heard this Manzoukas, episode yes jason manzoukas is a perfect podcast co-host because he comes on and just immediately begins to attack every piece of the organization <laughs> <laughs> he always like when he comes on the ringer he's like he's like oh okay so um i forgot the name of the guy who bill he's like oh so bill simmons wasn't going to be here to face me himself coward <laughs> jason is, is so funny i realize like, he, like there, there are people who do not connect themselves to his humor i love it i, I think he's very funny anyway it's great they've done some incredible reporting this year and um it's just a lot of fun so reply all <laughs> so the year of the, well, like if you were going to recommend one episode the year of the wallop would be it yeah it's just so it, i've listened to it like three or four times oh wow yeah, it's so funny. That's a strong recommendation. So this I is, listened to it immediately again after I finished it. <laughs> so even though it got bought by Spotify, is it still basically the same show? Yeah, it is. It's it, the show hadn't changed. It, it happens less. There's more that goes into the reporting, and it just is so sort of like costly because they they really take on like there was a one episode actually a more recent one where they tracked down a guy who was like a prolific Google reviewer in this like small town and like uh not a small town but like one of the cities in new mexico that's actually not that big uh-huh. maybe albuquerque i don't know albuquerque is pretty big right but it's like not a big city you know what i mean yeah yeah and uh but it, i think it might have been a different town anyway they like track him down and it's just a beautiful story and it's so funny it, it always starts with like a weird question on the internet and then it always comes back to humanity and that's what's so great about it, it it's a very popular podcast i mean in <laughs> to testify to that, like like I said, this is I think is this is our fourth one of these, 2016, 17, 18. Yeah, this is our fourth one of these. And I think you've included reply on all every every episode. This is the only if, thing we've talked about every every year. If you were to say you get a reply all every week, but you don't get to listen to any other podcasts, I would say, okay. Wow. That is high praise. And then uh you put a podcast on here that I, I promoted a couple of years ago, but I don't think we talked about it last year. Love it or leave it. Yeah, I just got back into Love It or Leave It. Uh, I kind of left the whole crooked media 
podcast for a little while just because it was too too sad. <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> to be a, especially to be a now part of that like collective self loathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and because I was just too, it made me so partisan. Not like that's their intent or anything. It's just I got I I, I get mad easy about this sort of thing. <laughs> But I just, it's such a satirical and lighthearted look. And there's an episode where Guy Branham, or, or he's on a bunch and he makes it so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and they talk about uh, a senator. They're like, you know, I think the senator, I think a Republican senator, they're talking about, I think they said, like, I think he's gay and just is, has like a wife as a beard. And, and then they both uh, postulate about what their lives would be like with their wives. <laughs> yeah. It's, Guy Brenham is so funny. But uh, did you listen to it a couple weeks ago when Joe Mandy was on? Yes. His joke about Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> was was the, I can't remember what the joke was. What was the joke? So this is a very partisan crowd. These are all like very left-leaning Democrats who are in the audience. Unapologetically. And Joe Mandy, it's not like they're like to be. Yeah. Not at all. And and then, and no one's like they're not trying to say that they're any like they're not trying to say they're they're this is not like Fox News. We're like, this is the truth. <laughs> they're not pretending they're like, to be fair and balanced. Yeah, they, they're like, they, they are, we are fully on the side. Yeah. You need to vote straight ticket. Well, they anyway. all they all used before before this was their gig. They they worked on President Obama's like speech writing team. Like the, yes. this, this is a group of people who like have like deep, deep roots in the Democratic Party. And, yes. I, and that's not a bad thing. It's just like they know where they come from. Right. They did a. Uh, a decade in review recently that was incredible but joe mandy was on and to this very left-leaning audience he was like look i love pete Buttigieg as much as anybody does i do but he's a mayor guys of a tiny town (laughs) (laughs) and we've already told the mayor two mayors of the biggest city in the country to just pack their bags and get out of (laughs) here so why are we it's it's not I get it. The Democratic Party's having their Sarah Palin moment, and like everyone boos him. He knows they're going to boo him too. Yeah. He's like, well, they're having their Sarah Palin moment, and then he goes, "Oh, you're you guys are right. It's not fair for me to compare him to Sarah Palin. After all, she was a governor." <laughs> <laughs> that was a good joke. You're and right. everyone in the audience was so mad at him. But that's his. That's Joe Mandy's brand of humor, and it, it is so funny. <laughs> I attended a live recording of Love It or Leave It when they came to Dallas. Oh. Was it great? It was so much fun. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, like my wife and uh, some friends of ours uh, went with us, and it was it was really fun. Like John Lovett is so so funny, and he uh, the energy, the live energy of the show is exactly what you would expect it to be in in a live venue. So it it was great. I'm glad I got to go. And his stories about Ronan Farrow are hilarious. Yeah, John Lovett. For those who don't know, John Lovett is. Uh, engaged to famed reporter Ronan Farrow, who we'll, we'll talk about again later. We'll talk uh, about in a moment. Yeah. In fact, John, John Lovett appears in as a character in Ronan Farrow's new book. So we'll, we, in fact, we, Ronan Farrow used a draft of his new book to propose to um, John Lovett. That's, that's such a cool idea. I'm uh, that. I'm, and I'm the fact that he just put it, it in the index because he knew that he wouldn't actually read the book. He would just go see if his name was in there. He would just go do a word search for his own name. Yeah, that was Oh, super that's funny. so funny. So, yeah, I agree. I think Love It or Leave It is it, – it's a super funny because it's, it's – I mean, really, Love It or Leave It is now what The Daily Show was during the George W. Bush presidency. Yeah, and, and uh, I love the, any, that anybody would buy ads on that show because they just make fun of the ad scripts yeah, so hard. And people buy ads every week. Well, yeah, and I mean, it is there's a, there's a reason because like lots and lots of people listen to that podcast. Yeah, so it's they are so brutal with those ad scripts. <laughs> Say what? They're so brutal to the ad scripts. They really are. Yeah, I, I except for the ones for the cash app. Oh, you would think cash, that cash the cash app. app, someone who had the cash app, would reimburse me for coming to my house 
and using a towel and then not putting it in the dirty clothes like Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even even the ads are quotable. It's it, it, that's how funny it is. So yeah, le- I'm I'm with you on love it or leave it. I think it's it's one of the ones I listen to as, as soon as I can when it shows up in my feed. It's a lot of fun. So yeah. then uh, the third thing we have on here, I have a couple of movie podcasts I put on here, I, and the first one is Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood. Have you ever listened to this? No. This is a and I I could have put any. I got really into movie podcasts this year. In fact, there's a number of podcasts from The Ringer that I could have included that I didn't. But um, Black Men Can't Jump is really interesting because what it is, it's uh, it's not unlike Denzel Washington's Greatest Actor of All Time Period, the podcast, but it is it is three black comedians plus whatever guests they end up having, and each episode they talk about a movie that is a mainstream movie that is fronted by a black actor, and so. The, the question of the, the the endearing or the enduring question of the podcast is uh, does this movie whatever movie it is that we're watching does this movie give us progress in, in in the cause of making it normal normalizing black actors in Hollywood like does this get help people get more work does this increase the likelihood of more diversity in storytelling in any sort of way and it's really interesting and really good and so I've gone back and I've listened to a lot of their older episodes and um, and I, I try and keep up with their new – and so like anytime there's a new uh, a new movie that comes out, like Dolomite is my name or 21 Bridges or a- anything that comes out, they, they try and, and cover it. And it's really interesting because it's one thing – not unlike having a conversation with Laurie Pierce. It's one thing for me to watch a movie through my own lenses. It's another thing for me to watch a movie and then go and listen to these three guys talk about it and ask like, okay, what are the racial undertones of this? And what are the things – that aren't being said, but are sort of the subtext of this. Like, yeah. why, why does it matter that like, well, one of the earlier episodes that they talk about is Beverly Hills cop. This is one. I, I think this is one of the best episodes of the show because they talk about Beverly Hills cop and they do a whole episode where they Beverly Hills cop, by the way, is one of my all time favorite movies. I love that movie. And one of the things that's interesting about that movie is that when it was written, it was written for Sylvester Stallone and uh, Sylvester Stallone famously dropped out of the movie about two weeks before they went into production. And then, oh, wow. And, yeah, and then at the very last minute, they cast Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy was this big rising star who was coming out of SNL, and he had been in uh, um, in 48 Hours with Nick Nolte. And so he was sort of like the next big deal. Um, so they put him in this movie, and a lot of his scenes are improvised because they had not changed the script from oh, when it was wow. supposed to be Sylvester Stallone. So. A lot of the time in the in the show in the movie, you see Eddie Murphy kind of riffing, and it feels like he's just being Eddie Murphy. It's because yeah, that's what he's doing because he the script called for Sylvester Stallone, and Eddie Murphy can't be Sylvester Stallone, right? And it, it's really interesting. But one of the things that they changed about the movie is in the original draft of the script, the female lead was supposed to be the romantic lead for Sylvester Stallone, and she was cast as a white woman, and they did not change any of the rest of the casting, and so they took out the romantic. All, all the romantic stuff in, oh, in, dang. in the Eddie Murphy version. So, which to in this in this podcast, like, to me, I was like, well, they just changed it. But what these guys point out, I think rightly so, is yeah, because it's considered deeply subversive to have a black man like um, it, like seducing a white woman. And so, right. they, and so they talk about how even though there's a lot of like progress being made with this movie, there's also like this this like racist fear of having a black man seduce a white or like in a in a romantic relationship with with a white woman. And so they just took all the romantic stuff out of the story. That's so, crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, and and so like this, that's that I think to me that's that's one of the values of this podcast is is it, it like puts these movies in front of you and says like okay, do you understand? what's going on 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 a racial level 
to like does that change the way you look at this movie and so again not unlike having a conversation with laurie pierce about born in the usa or any number of other bruce springsteen songs what happens when you begin to look at these movies through the question of like what is this movie actually saying about how we think about race in america or in the world and so um so anyway the, the podcast is really good and it's really funny and they eviscerated green book and rightly so and um right. and so there's um any number of movies like to me, I, I love film criticism. And I love thinking about this kind of stuff. And, and this movie does a really good job of really exploring this kind of thing. So that's Black Man Can't Jump in Hollywood. And then the next one is... Uh, Wait, a, did you did you watch SNL last week? No, I'm so far... Was it the Eddie Murphy episode? No, um, Scarlett Johansson was on? No, I'm not seeing it yet. And a, uh, a Hallmark movie dating show where she played a busy reporter who had a deadline that she had to meet by Christmas and her boss was going to make her work on <laughs> Christmas. Yeah. And she was up against like three guys who all had something that they had to like, a, like one guy was a work for a lumber mill and they had to save it from this evil corporate online corporation called Google mania. And they had to, <laughs> they had to raise the money to keep, to, you know, pay for their own company by Christmas. And another guy was like the Prince of Caucasia and another guy, and another guy was like totally Santa Claus. <laughs> He's like, what's <laughs> up? I work one day a year. I work with a lot of short people. I'm not Santa Claus. <laughs> oh my God. And at one point the Prince of Caucasia's best friend comes out and is Jay Farrow. And he's like, hey, what's up? I just had to tell you something real quick. And she's like, oh, hey, who are you? You're cute. And he's like, oh, no, lady, I don't have a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was like a really like well done, if if shallow criticism, like along those lines. Oh, that, that, yeah. Really well done, though. That is absolutely a thing. And I've been watching this time of year, uh, Caroline. The reason we have cable is so that Caroline can watch Hallmark Christmas movies. And right. one of the things that we've been kind of laughing about or watching and and noticing a lot is that every, almost every Hallmark movie, Hallmark Christmas movie has a white male lead, a white female lead. And then at least one of those characters has a, a best friend or coworker who is not white, but like not only the Jay Farrow, like no backstory. It's their whole purpose is to give this person romantic advice and to say sassy things. Yeah. They're like, they're not white and or gay. Yes. But they are given no responsibility, and they are given no backstory. Like, but but for this, uh, but for this white person's romantic life, this person would have no reason to exist at all. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's that's definitely a staple of the Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, man, that's funny. So then, uh, the next podcast we've got is Blank Check with Griffin and David. Have you ever listened to this? No, but does it have anything to do with the 1990s kids movie Blank Check? It does not, but I you could be oh. forgiven for thinking that. No, what God, it is, I love that it, movie. It's so weird, though. It's so wrong. <laughs> this movie is, or this podcast is super interesting because what it is is it's a movie about the filmographies of directors. And so what? then the reason the title is – or the title of the podcast comes from the idea of a director might have a major success and then the next movie that that director makes is is basically they're issued a blank check. Like, oh, this, per- this right. director was very successful, so now what will they do with that success? So what they do is they go through the filmographies of specific directors. It's really interesting. For people who like movies, this is a really interesting deep dive into the filmographies of certain directors. So they've done like Michael Mann and they've done um, Hayao Miyazaki. They're doing – right now they're doing Jonathan Demme, and which by the way, one of the, one of the movies they're talking about, which I've not listened to yet, is uh, Stop Making Sense, the uh, Talking Heads documentary. Oh, yeah. Uh, so like they're – Is they're that the one through. with the, the boxy suit? Yes. 
Oh my gosh, that documentary is, has so much to do with how I turned out the way I did after college. So, well, then you should listen to this because they're they're getting at because eventually Jonathan Demi is going to make Silence of the Lambs, right? And so they're, they're they're what they're trying to sort of explore is like how does a director move? Oh, they did one, they did a whole series on Christopher Nolan, which was really interesting um, because obviously, like after Batman Begins, like he pretty much had a blank check for whatever he wanted to do and he made the prestige. And so uh, they did one on Catherine Bigelow. They have, uh, they did one on Steven Spielberg. So they, they do, they do these like long series where they look, they watch a movie and they kind of talk about each movie in succession and they do an entire filmography of a different director. And I think it's really interesting because it really shows you like sort of how does, I mean, really the question of like this person made a really good movie and then they made a, like they made some pretty weird choices after that. And like, how does that happen? And this is a really interesting podcast that kind of explores like the trajectory of any given filmmaker. I, I'm fascinated as I'll get out by that kind of thing. So, um, wow. yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. blank, blank check with Griffin and David. And then, uh, the next one is one I've not listened to, but I plan to, which is finding Fred. Yeah. So this is great. This is uh, a podcast that just explores. It's for anyone who needs a little bit of goodness in their life and feels like there isn't goodness in the world anymore. It's about and, Fred Rogers. Yeah. It, so it explores like Fred Rogers and the things that made him greater than the rest of us while simultaneously telling us that we can also be that good. And it's just kind of keeps coming back to like this idea of like helping the helpers, mm-hmm. which is the thing that he, Fred Rogers famously said after nine 11. Yeah said you know i'm so proud of all of you you've all grown up to be such good people i'm just here to remind you that the world sometimes sucks and you just have to look for the helpers and do what you can to be a helper and to help the helpers um and just i don't know i've been going back and watching fred rogers with my kid and um it's incredible man uh, and listening to this podcast is really great. Just it interviews of people who, who Fred Rogers touched in a real way. Um, just like he was, a you know, a genuinely good human. Like he was, he was, you know, if, if there were angels, uh, living amongst us, you know, he was one of them. He's one of the better ones. He, he, he was one of the good ones. Yeah. It's a really beautiful look at that. And like, there's, they talk about some tough stuff that he dealt with and some of the really difficult conversations he had. And and they don't always come to like resolutions that you would necessarily want them to, but you can always kind of look at his he shows his work on his math problems, and you can always see how he got there. And it's I don't know it's pretty beautiful. I, I this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. In, in fact, I'm going to talk about this uh, at, at my church when we do our Christmas Eve service. This is going to be part of what I talk about, which is in the last two years there have been two movies and one podcast series made about the life of Fred Rogers. Like all of a sudden. We have this unbelievable, like this this deep thirst to to know as much as we can about this person. You know, there's a documentary, there's the Tom Hanks movie, there's this podcast, and I I remember a couple of weeks ago I went to see A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is the Tom Hanks movie about Fred Rogers. I want to see it so bad. It's it's good, and I mean it's it's not great, it's but it is good. But the, I remember sitting there thinking like, why am I like this? Is the second time in less than twelve months that I'm sitting in a dark room watching a movie about this one person. Why? And I started thinking of like, and I had this this sort of realization while I was sitting there, which is like, oh, we are starved for kindness. We, we, we are absolutely dying for someone in public with some amount of influence and authority to model kindness for the human population. Because the person who is most famous in this world right now is the person who's the current president of the United States. And he is one of the most unkind, vicious, malevolent, like hateful people 
anyone has ever seen on the public stage. And so our response to that at some sort of subconscious level is, does it have to be this way? And I think our fascinating with Fred Rogers is a direct response to that. I think we're like somewhere inside of us. We're like, surely we can do better. You know what I mean? I 100% agree with that's why this is, this is so popular right now. I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm excited to listen to this podcast. And, the did you see the documentary about him that won't you be my neighbor? No, I've been meaning to watch all of that stuff. I just haven't. But this this um, podcast has been kind of feeling that. I'm sure. I'm, that. I'm sure the podcast series covers a lot of the same territory that the documentary does. Yeah. But yeah, I I mean, yeah, like why all of a sudden have we idealized this, or have we begun to remember and talk about and idealize this person? And it's like, oh right, because the person that everyone's talking about all the time is like a, a bottomless like well of of hatred and vitriol and we're yeah. we're looking for the antidote. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. So so finding is it a mini series or is it gonna keep going? Like I saw I, I went to the I don't know. it was like five or six six episodes so far. I, I have no idea. It's great though. I'm excited to listen to it. I look forward to it when I'm having a stressful day. Well the episodes are relatively short too. They're like thirty to forty five minutes, right? Yeah, they are. So then uh, the last podcast we have on our on our list is Good One, a podcast about jokes. This is this is mine. This is just a podcast where uh what what this I, I don't even remember the name of the host, but what he'll do is uh he'll he'll play a joke, like a famous joke or a bit from a from a comedian, like uh, something from John Mulaney or Pete Holmes or Maria Bamford, and then he'll sit down and interview that person about like how did you write this joke? Where did the joke come from? Like talk talk about like how like what are the different iterations of it before you got to this? What you know what gave birth to this show? And it's super interesting. Like as a person who writes and as a per- person who speaks publicly, I'm in, in, infinitely interested in how a, how a thought goes from being just like a little like a thought to being a thing that you say to a crowd of people every night. You know, and this is a really interesting sort of exploration of that, that sort of that journey. So. Yeah, I've listened to a few of these. I haven't listened to all of them or really that many, but I think I found it because of um, the old ones. Oh, the uh, what's his name? Mike Birbiglia, Mike Birbiglia podcast about yeah. his old stuff. Yeah. And I think this this popped up as a recommendation um, as an ad or something on that one. And um, it's 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 fun. Well, and um, yeah, he's got he's got an interview. I think my Birbiglia is on at, le- at least one episode, but also one of the most recent ones that I listened to was an interview. It, it was a it was a panel interview with the writers of The Good Place. Oh, nice! Super funny. It was really really good. So if if you could only go back and listen to one episode, try and find that one. If you're if you're a fan of the show The Good Place, I'm gonna check it out. I'm gonna add it right now. Nice. So, uh, so that that does it for podcasts. We got two more categories to go. We got books. You you ready to start talking about books? Oh yeah, I'm so ready to talk about books. All right, talk to me about a friend is a gift you give yourself. All right, so this is Thelma and Louise meets the mob. This is um is is uh this incredible story of unlikely friends who just really needed someone in in, in a really terrible time. Um, it's, it's a, a pretty heavily, uh, female cast, um, which is just different in this sort of genre. It's kind of a grit lit situation, you know, sort of a Elmore Leonard oh, nice. kind of deal, you know, Richard Ford short story kind of deal. And so the chapters are really cool handoffs. If, if, uh, if you think about it as a movie and the first five minutes are a fight from the perspective of character one. Then uh, the next five minutes will pick up at minute three from perspective two and then carry you five more minutes into the next scene. 
Interesting. So I, you sort of like you get a scene from the first person's perspective, and then you get like the second half of that scene from the second person's perspective, and that person goes to the next scene, um, which is really fun. That's, to that's read. fascinating. It's a it's an absolute blast. So yeah, it'll be like uh, uh, yeah, and then she um, started for, to pre- prepare some tea, and they sat down to talk, and then uh, and then James walked up on the porch and kicked in the door with a shotgun. And she was terrified. Her, you know, cocked the gun or whatever. Blah blah blah, and then. Chapter, next chapter will start, and it'll be like, James is ready. He was sick and tired of hearing them all talking about him. He walked up the steps of the porch. He kicked in the door. That'll be the next chapter. Oh, wow. And, this and it'll carry to, like, James leaving the house and fleeing from the cops. And then the next chapter would maybe be the cop. So it's pretty propulsive, it sounds like. It sounds like it, oh, it moves pretty quickly. so propulsive. I read it so fast. It was so much fun. And I the- gave it away at our – we have this, like, book exchange white Christmas party where you bring the best book you read that year. And I, I ordered a new copy of this to give away. Is this your favorite book that you read this year? Uh, I read a lot of books this year, so I don't know. So this, this year, year I tried novel. to read a book every week, um, but I, I had a blast with it. And I think th- th- noteworthy because this is the only novel that either of us included on the list. Yeah, we've got all nonfiction, it looks like. Yeah, yeah you're do. right. I need, yeah, I need I, to I read, read more fiction. Great fiction. Not a lot written this year. Um, which some of us have higher standards for our book lists and only talk about books released this year. But uh, <laughs> that's my bad. I, I included at the very end of the list. I included one book that was technically released in 2018. It's okay, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it's it's a super fun read. It's not long. It's like 250 pages or something like that. It's super good. A friend is a gift you give yourself. It is it is a blast. By William Boyle. Yeah, William Boyle. And it goes through – it kind of features like three or four generations of women in New York and sort of how they all come together in the end. It's a blast. That sounds good. I'm going to have to – I'm going to add that to my uh, to my wish list. So yeah. the, the next uh, book we've got here is Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrah. Now, we mentioned before – I really that, wanted to knock this out before the end of the year, but I just could not get to it. It's very good. It reads like a spy novel because in, – in the story behind it, this is a non, nonfiction story. Ronan Farrah – is an investigative reporter. He currently uh, writes for The New Yorker. He was, at the time that this investigation started, he was working for NBC. And a big part of the book is, in, like, why he no longer works for NBC. Yeah. Um, but uh, Ronan Farrow is also the fiancé of John Lovett, who's the host of Love It or Leave It. And, uh, and also the the son of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, who, the, like, his, his, uh, his relationship with Woody Allen is, is part of like what makes this book so interesting actually. And so um, anyway, so the, the notion behind the book catch and kill is it, it, it's pretty much animated by the story of the investigation into Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, specifically the stories of sexual misconduct, uh, pre- the predatory behavior, the abuse, the rape, all, all, all the stuff and all, all the ways that Harvey Weinstein kind of did his best to prevent the story from coming out. And it is, really interesting and and it shouldn't be surprising that powerful people with lots of money and influence are able to do everything they can to try and stop damaging stories from coming out about them in the news but um i mean really the the one thing the one thing you walk away with having read this book is like harvey weinstein is a vicious guy like just the idea like there there's nothing he won't do to keep a, a, a bad story about him from coming out. And he definitely belongs yeah. in prison. So, um, so anyway, that, that's, that's what the story is about. And it, it talks about sort of how, um, 
he Ronan Farrow was at the time working for the Today Show at at NBC and with Matt Lauer, amazingly. And uh, as the story sort of started to take shape, it became clearer and clearer that NBC was not going to let him run the story. So he had to leave and kind of take the story to the New Yorker and. Um, and all the, all the ways that, that powerful people did their best to sort of keep the story from coming out. And, uh, Ronan Farrow, I, I think we will look back at Ronan and Farrow as sort of the, uh, Woodward and Bernstein of our, of our generation. Like he, he is sure. an incredible journalist and really, they, and they make jokes about this on Love It or Leave It, but like, if you are a powerful person and you, and Ronan Farrow calls you and wants to talk to you, like the best thing you can do is basically just like hide <laughs> because, yeah. because if Ronan, Ronan Farrow is calling you, then he's got something and you are screwed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just, just an amazing journalist. And I, I think he's doing really, really necessary, holy work by exposing some really, really terrible people and really uh, toxic behavior. And um, I'm really glad he wrote this book and the book is just really good, by the way. Like just, if you, it, it, even if you're not interested in like um, investigative journalism, just, just the, the propulsion of this story is really, really good. And it's um, the, the process of it all. It's, it's, it's not a like spotlight or all the president's men. It's just a really good process story. Yeah. So I hope you get to it. It's 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 a very good book. It, I mean, I'll, I'll get to it very quickly in the new year. Yeah, and <clears> then not on the Christmas break, it, it, and it, it's a quick read. You'll you'll get through it quickly, I'm sure. So uh, yeah. Then the next one is a book. I'm actually currently reading this, but you put this on your list, which is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm. Are you Gladwell. reading it or listening to it? I'm listening to it. So Malcolm Gladwell has gotten pretty good at the whole audio storytelling and podcasting, and so as he's writing this book, he realizes that he gets more audio book downloads than he actually gets book purchases, and so. And he's like, well, I, look, I, you know, I want to license this music anyway from Janelle Monet because I love this song. It, it fits, it fits the the theme, and I've got all this great tape that I use. You know, reporters tape interviews all the time. He's like, I got all this great tape. Why not let these people tell their own stories instead of me trying to tell them? And so the audiobook's incredible. It's like the it's, longest, best episode of This American Life I've ever heard. Yeah, and it's it's so well. It's pretty. It's yeah. It's basically like this week on This American Life in seventeen acts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's so good. It's Malcolm Gladwell at his best, and it's just talking about how we have uh, systems in place that are maybe good on the whole, but not well executed because we are human, and so we have to. It's not saying like anyone's necessarily bad or anything. It's just like we have to examine the lens through which we examine things, and. Um, well, it's, it's fascinating great. how he, he talks about how bad we are at knowing when someone is lying to us. Like that's sort of the, yeah. the general thesis of the book. Like you, like you, you think you're really good at knowing truth from deception, and you're not. Right. Well, and also, yeah, and also, you don't know deception from truth either. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like you're hitting all the bad guys and then only trapping a few of the good guys. It's like a lot of bad guys are getting away, and also a lot of good guys are getting trapped up in it in the system. Um, it's, it's super interesting. Yeah. I, I have infinite, I mean, really Malcolm Gladwell is sort of a master of finding interesting stories and sort of dissecting what it is that makes those stories interesting. But yeah, this book, he takes it to a whole other level, but just, I mean, really, like you said, the, like the audio quality of the audiobook is like, he, he, he really has just like doubled down on everything that makes him great at what he does. And this, this book yeah. does all, <laughs> it, it hits all the Malcolm Gladwell pleasure centers of the brain. Like if you like well, Malcolm Gladwell's book, work. This is this is gonna do everything you want it to do. It's 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 like he takes a list of like spurious correlations, uh, which if you're not familiar with the term, it's like if you were to compare 
like suicide rate with number of history teachers at a certain university in a year. <laughs> yeah. And like you could probably map, you know, if you if you grab enough random stats, you can map them over a graph to tell like a compelling story that but they have nothing to do with each other. But Malcolm Gladwell like looks at every spurious, spurious correlation and then is like, wait a second, this one's real. <laughs> and that's what's so great about him. It's he's so good at sort of connecting the dots in data, like finding the real stories to tell that connect these seemingly unconnected dots in data. What what to you was the? I mean, I, I'm not totally done with it yet. But what to you was the the strongest takeaway? Like, what what was the thing that you, as you were listening to it, thought like? Oh, wow. Like, that's going to change the way I, I think about certain things. Well, the way he tells the Sandra Bland story, which is sort of like the connecting tissue through the whole thing, is incredible. Yeah. The FBI uh, spy thing was just like, I, I can't even wrap my head around that whole story. Um, but it's, a lot of it is about, like, police training and police. And it's it's not it's not even, like, painting this picture of, like, police is bad or corrupt. It's just, like, painting police as people trained a certain way. And you look at all – just basically what he looks at, like, training – and all these different systems in our uh, legal system and how they're put together. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with marriage story earlier. It's like, well, this system was uh, like somehow rewards the cheaters who know how to cheat the system because it was created just for the worst case scenarios. Mm. So this idea that like we're looking for the worst in people, we can find bad, what feels like bad in just everyday activities. Yeah. If, if we uh, attach enough sort of signifiers to it. Yeah, well, and and how he talks about like the mismatch of like you think if a person is telling you something that seems untrue and they act like they're lying, then that matches. But like when the thing we really struggle with is when a person seems sincere and they're lying, or when a person looks like they're lying but they're actually telling the truth, like that's that's a dangerous place to be. That's how people. Yeah, like Amanda Knox is a story that I've always been fascinated with. And that was fascinating. Yes. Well, there's a documentary about that on Netflix that is incredible. Mm, I have to check that out. But yeah. yeah, and he he compares uh, Amanda Knox to Bernie Madoff. Like everybody thought Bernie Madoff was sincere and genuine, and it turned out like no, he was stealing billions of dollars from people. And then Amanda Knox right. was someone who seemed phony and calculating, and it turned out she was telling the truth. And like how you know, like our perception of those. Th- well, and and just the data of like a computer is better at knowing whether a person will reoffend when they're uh, let out of prison than a than a judge. You know, and they talk about like all the data because a judge, like the the impressions that a judge gets from like the face to face contact, actually distorts how the how like it it doesn't help. It actually hurts. You know. Yeah, but we can't. We as a society just cannot let ourselves leave something like that up to a machine as opposed to a human. Like we can't let a machine make a more empathic choice for yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. As, it's like uh, uh, the question about automated drivers that is is going to define the next generation is like. If we can say that we are going to eliminate, you know, all but 15 traffic deaths a year that, you know, save tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives or whatever a year, but that a machine will randomly decide uh, the 15 people that die, like, is that a decision that we as a society can hand over? Yeah. And I I, I speculate no. No. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Right. Even though we're going to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah, man. It, it's, I mean, that this is what, what makes Malcolm Gladwell great is he, he connects all these dots and he, he poses all these questions and he sort of like hands it back to you and says like, okay, so what are you going to do with all this? Like I'm handing you all this information. So what are the, what are the moral and societal conclusions you can draw 
now that you know these things, you know, and that, yeah. like to me, he, he is great at posing really interesting questions. And this book does a really good job of doing that. Yeah. So I'm glad you put this on here. Cause like I said, I'm not done with it yet. Uh, so I've, I've still got a couple, like, I think I have like two more hours to go until I'm fully done, but it is, I mean, I, it's, it's very rare for me to read a book or to listen to a book and think like, you know, to, I, I would recommend the audio version of the book over the print version, but this is definitely one of those situations because clearly Malcolm yeah. Gladwell put more effort and time into the audio version than he did into the print version. So yeah, I feel like I would recommend this in Confederacy of Dunces only Interesting. as audio book over, uh, over, uh, Print book. Ooh, I'll have, to, I'll have to do that with Confederacy of Dentists. I'm not. I'm not well, yeah, the guy that. who does it the for the vagrant, he does an incredible voice. He's like, oh, oh wow, man. <laughs> oh, nice. I love that. It's so great. I would make the argument that the Harry Potter series is is awesome on audio as well. It um, is, but it can't touch like reading it in your own brain. <laughs> Maybe that's true. All right. Well, then uh, the the next book we have on the list is Walk This Way by Jeff Edgers. This is the book. Th- this book is interesting. I I think this book would uh, be of interest to a lot of our listeners because this is about the collaboration between Aerosmith and run DMC uh, for the walk this way single in the 1980s. So this is pretty much when hip hop became mainstream um, because there, there was, there was sort of like the hip hop segment of the music world. And then there was the rock segment and, um, You've got Rick Rubin, who, by the way, uh, there's some connective tissue between Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell because they both they co-host a podcast called Broken Records. So there's a little bit of connectivity right. there, too. Um, but this is a really interesting story because it talks about Run DMC as like this young, hungry hip-hop group, but also Aerosmith is kind of like this this kind of done, has-been rock group that really needed a comeback. And so yeah. um, it, it, it's it's super interesting as a collaboration. And most of the book is sort of it, it kind of goes back and forth between you'll, you'll have one chapter about Aerosmith and then one chapter about run DMC. And then at a certain point, the two stories converge. Um, but both, both groups I, I think are really, really interesting. And I, I've always been a big fan of Aerosmith and, um, and I, it's my first real concert, Aerosmith and Stuntable Pilots. Say, oh, you know what? We talked about this. this. Mine too. That's, that's a thing that you and I share. Aerosmith or Aerosmith and Stuntable Pilots. Well, it was Aerosmith and talk show, which was Stone Temple Pilots minus Scott Weiland. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they had another, I didn't realize they had a band called Talk Show. I liked Army of Anyone, which yeah. is also them minus Scott Weiland. <laughs> they kept renaming themselves every time Scott Weiland would leave the band. <laughs> well, it was a different drummer and a different lead singer. It was yeah. just the DeLeo brothers, which those dudes can make more noise than any two dudes. Yeah, they can. Uh, so, so much noise, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I'm a, I'm a fan of Aerosmith. Aerosmith currently has a – they have a residency right now in Las Vegas. And if, if I could just, like, get on a plane and go anywhere right now, I think it would be just to go see Aerosmith one more time before they're done. It's a great show, man. It is they're a, a show. great show. Well, and and I, Joey Perry can – like, is the only person I've ever seen play, like, 23 guitars over the course of 20 songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I've seen – I think I've seen Aerosmith five times in my life. And every time, it's – it is a super enjoyable experience. And yeah. Uh, I, I hope I get to see them at least one more time before they they hang it all up. Um, it, God, which, by it the way, is probably not show. that long from now because like I follow I follow them on on Instagram and more than once they've posted like, "Hey, the show's canceled tonight because Steven Tyler blew his voice out." So, um, <laughs> so we're probably not long until they they just can't do this anymore. But anyway, so walk this way, Joe, being like, "Hey, the show's canceled tonight because Steven sucks right now." <laughs> yeah, which I mean, I'm sure they're like, "Look, I mean, we're we're." We don't have to travel at all. We basically just like live in Las Vegas and show up to work like 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 a normal group of guys. And so if we have to cancel the show every once in a while, whatever, you know. So, yeah. um, 
so anyway, I, I, I really like this book, Walk This Way. I, and it, it, what it did was it gave me a new appreciation for Run DMC, which I didn't necessarily have. Like, I, I, obviously, I knew like the, the big hits, but I didn't really understand like what artists and visionaries they really were as hip-hop artists. And, um, and this, this book gave me a good appreciation for not just Aerosmith at that time, but also like it, it gave me sort of a new window into sort of the birth of that, that era of the hip-hop movement, which was yeah. super interesting. So that's Walk have, This Way. Have so, you ever heard Daryl DMC? McDaniel's talk about um, how Sarah McLaughlin saved his life. No. Uh, so he tells a story most recently on the Hilarious World of Depression podcast, but I've heard it on it. And maybe The Moth also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really heartwarming. I'll have to check that out. On the Hilarious World of Depression? Yeah. It's a All great right. podcast, by the way. That's a good That's a good ad. That's a good little bonus honorable mention on the podcast. Yeah. All right, now you put then I I put these two things together because they're both like music history books. But the birth of Loud by Ian Port. Yeah, this was I didn't know this was coming out. Um, and it maybe wasn't it like my favorite book to read or whatever. I actually listened to the audiobook. Um, but I, I had such a blast. Just uh, it's so it's the birth of Loud. How Leo Fender and Les Paul changed the face of rock and roll or electric music forever. So it's basically it's just, about like electric guitars. Yeah, it's just about how like their like relationship and their competitiveness and and their sort of race to build the best solid body guitar, mm. like electric guitar, and um, it's incredible. And there's some great stories about just you know some of those early rock and roll musicians and honky tonk musicians in there. Um, it's just so much fun to listen to. And like to hear, Leo Fender like didn't play guitar; he was just like a really dedicated craftsman who loved music. Um, and Les Paul was like this showman on the guitar and they were just like such a weird sort of, uh, friend, you know, like it's such a weird friendship and rivalry. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a kind of a beautiful book about these two engineers who changed the way that we will listen to music forever. It's like Ford versus Ferrari, but about guitars. Yeah. But like if Ford didn't drive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or like, Yeah. (laughs) It's like if Ford only really cared about like rubber quality and tires. Mm. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, check it out. It's good. The Birth of Loud. So is it like it, is it a lot of technical stuff or is, like what what's sort of like the the, con, the the moving conflict through the book? Uh, have you read The Martian? Yes. So you know how like it's got a ton of technical stuff in it, but it doesn't matter if you love it and know that it's correct or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Oh, okay. That's a, that's an interesting it's kind of comparison. Yeah, it kind of runs you through it, and it doesn't matter if you know it or not. It's you know, it's just like it's enough to tell you that it's impressive oh, and man. right. All right, well, I'm gonna and I'm gonna pick it up. It's really about just like their commitment to craft and to other musicians, and how just people kind of came and went in that scene, and sort of the volatility of the whole thing. Um, but like the dedication to art too. Man, that sounds good. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna add that to my list. There's there's some there there were several books about music that came out this year that I wanted to include, but I just didn't have the space for it. Like uh, there was a book about Janis Joplin that was really interesting. Yeah, uh, Janet, and this is not on our list, but uh, Janis Joplin to me is one of the most fascinating figures in music history, and uh, I just did not know enough about her. And I, I read the book about her, and uh, I just man, it, one one of the great tragedies in music history is that Janis Joplin died when she was 27. Yeah, you know. Um, but anyway, so like, yeah, there's lots of books and there was an Elton John book that I've not even read yet. There was a book about Prince. Like I, and so I'm, I'm glad like you... I'm going to skip the Elton John book. I don't know. Just the way it was advertised to me. I was like, uh, Oh, I'll read it for sure. <laughs> yeah. I love Elton John. 
I had a buddy who saw Elton John last year, and he said that he just yelled at the people, like the assistants, bringing him water on stage the whole time. Oh, well, that's disappointing. <laughs> I, that's another one that I'm like, I may, I'm probably too late to catch him. You yeah. know, like I realize like he's still around and technically performing, but not unlike Aerosmith, like it's probably I'm probably not gonna get what a lot of people who love Elton John got the first time they saw him. You know, mm-hmm. so that's a shame. But um, all right, well then the last book we have on our list is the book. It's 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 a book called Pure. It's by Linda K. Klein. This is really I, I felt like I needed to put at least one like spiritual quasi theology book on the list just because that's on brand for me. But uh, this is a book about um, basically the trauma of coming out of purity culture. If you grew up like in an evangelical, jeez, oh, yeah. It's I mean it, it's it's a hard read, especially if you came out of it. But basically, and if you if if you are fortunate enough to not know what purity culture is, it's basically this the subculture within, or I mean, really it's one of the the core teachings of a lot of evangelical churches specifically towards like kids and teenagers, which is basically the, the assumption that sexuality is evil and deviant and that your body is like this, um, this terrible weapon that is being used against you and against everybody else at all times. And it does a lot of, there's a lot of body shaming specifically towards young girls. And, um, and so basically this book does a good job of kind of deconstructing, first of all, what, what does this teaching, where did, where did all these teachings come from? And then second of all, how did these teachings affect and change the lives of this entire generation of young women who grew up in this culture? All like, which by the way, is also the culture that I grew up in. And, yeah, and so it's a, it's a really interesting sort of deconstruction of that, but it's also, it's, it's pretty unflinching in sort of its exploration of like, what was this and where did it come from and why, why do we still carry all this baggage around and what, what did it do to us? And it really was um, pretty insidious and pretty, uh, pretty damaging in a lot of ways. So I wanted to put it, put it on the list just, just because I feel like it's, it was worth mentioning. And it te- again, technically it came out in 2018, but it was um, it, it, because a lot of my work at the church that I do involves uh, sort of giving, giving language to, what it means to come out of a not necessarily healthy religious background. Uh, This book is, is very much in my wheelhouse and I'm really glad it exists and I hope a lot more people read it. So I'm definitely going to check that one out. That's a a close, very close topic for me. (laughs) Kind of close to the bone for you. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. Give it a listen. It's, I mean, or give it a, a read. It's not, it's not easy to, it's not an easy one. It's, it's not something you'll just like blow through. A lot of the stories are really sad and really upsetting. Um, but it's, uh, these are stories that are worth telling and I'm, I'm glad Linda K. Klein, Linda K. Klein is doing some really important work right now. So I'm glad she's, she's out there. That's cool. All right. Last topic. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Comic books. Comic books. So, uh, not, not nearly as appreciated as an art form as I think it should be. Yeah. Comic books are books, man. People, they're like, uh, I only read comic books. I'm like, you read books, man. Well, I mean, the the artistry, uh, I mean, you're telling a story and you're, uh, and not only do you have a writer, but you also have somebody who has to sit down with a pencil and then somebody else who has to sit down who will color the thing and ink the thing and put letters to the, like, it, it really is a collaborative art form and it's, um, when done well, it's, it's really unlike any other thing. And yeah, I think we should be talking about it more. So the, the first one we have is American Carnage by Brian Edward Hill and Lilandra Fernandez. Have you read any of this? No, it only ran for nine issues. Uh, it ran. It was. It was a Vertigo, which is sort of a sort of a, a subset of DC Comics, which I think is shut down now. But this is. It, I think it was intended originally to run for longer, but I think at a certain point, Brian Edward Hill, who wrote it, 
kind of decided like this is way too dark and way too traumatic and I can't I cannot stay in this world. So I think he decided to wrap up the story early. But it's it is really good. It's basically about um it it, it is about an FBI agent who is um biracial but he passes for white and he he infiltrates a white supremacist organization. And uh and, and so the story is basically like what basically like it this guy's getting his soul torn apart because he has to go into a white supremacist organization and nobody but him knows that he's um half black and so it is um it, it's really it's very dark and like one of the, it, it's it follows like sort of a political figure who's definitely sort of a a donald trump sort of stand in and he's he's got a daughter who's definitely like an ivanka type and um it it's it's really really it's dark and it's really entertaining, but it, it does a really good job of sort of posing questions about it, like how, like what, what are, what are the darker parts of this and how, like why, why are these kinds of, why is this kind of uh, language and rhetoric? Why is this so dangerous? And what does this do to, to the people who were part of it? And um, so anyway, that's American Carnage by Brian Edward Hill and Lil Andrew Fernandez. So then you have Star Wars. Yeah, so this is way lighter. Um, but yeah, one thing so. I love about Star Wars extended, expanded universe is like in the expanded universe, they're not scared to get super political and like make statements. And whenever you add another element, like whenever you add an entire other world, you can like there's this play that I really this musical I really love called Avenue Q. It's about um, it's about white people and black people and uh, a woman from China and a gay roommate and a straight roommate and also monsters and also puppets. Right. So like you can have conversations about intersectionality and about um, otherism much easier when you're talking about puppets, when it's like a black guy and a white guy talking about puppets and monsters. Um, So you can say things and get away with things that you can't uh, if you leave it sort of just within the actual reality we're in. So when you expand your reality, uh, and that's what Star Wars does a lot. And in their expanded universe, specifically in this latest comic run with Marvel that's been going on for like five years now, four years now. Who, who is writing this, by the way? Do you, do you know um, who the current writer is on the series? There's, there's been a, a bunch. Um, I know Jason Aaron was on it at first, but I think I thought he, he rotated off. Uh, Gil, something Gillian. Hang on. Is it Karen Gillan? Karen Gillan. And I want to say Brian. Um, the guy that wrote the end of the last run for Dark Horse wrote a lot of the. Oh, but Karen Gillan's written, yeah, Brian Wood. He, yeah. I think he started on a few. Karen Gillan's written the like the most of anybody else in the Star Wars universe between like Darth Vader and um, Doctor Afra and Star Wars. That dude There's is a, a lot of different super years. cerebral writer. He he he's he's telling stories at a whole other level than a lot of guys. Yeah, and there's there's store there's there's tons of comics, and the thing that's so great is that these comics in this extended universe actually speak to the cinematic universe, and it's kind of really it's really cool to watch like a character who's been in a cartoon like a kids cartoon and a couple of comic books show up in this huge video game they put out this year in a way that makes you think oh she's gonna show up in a movie one day you know and like watching these sort of stories bubble up. And be paid attention to – like Marvel and DC don't pay attention to their weekly comics the way that Star Wars does. You know what I'm saying? Like their superhero comic books may or may not maybe influence a movie one day, whereas Star Wars is like pulling stories. They're like starting stories in the comic book and finishing them on screen. Well, and Marvel, really- Marvel has – well, I mean, well, for one thing, the Star Wars stories are supposed to be in continuity with the movies. 
Right, Marvel's influence the universe, whereas Star like Star Wars, which is a part of Marvel, but uh, the Star Wars series lives in the exact same universe. If a thing is true in a comic book, it is true in a Marvel in a, in a Star Wars movie. So, like, you, and if you read something in a Star Wars comic book, technically, according to Lucasfilm and slash Marvel slash Disney, like that is canon. So, like, if something yes. happens in a Star Wars comic book, the movies will agree with that. Right. Whereas like Spider-Man might die, become Doc Ock, come back to life as Peter Parker and then die again in between two Spider-Man movies that never acknowledge any of that stuff happening. Right. Or Tony. Yeah. Tony Stark might like enter the consciousness of Dr. Doom for a year or two or something like that. Yeah. In the comics. Yeah. Which is fun. But in Star Wars, it's like real world stakes. And that's cool to like watch them and trust these writers and these weekly stories with that much um, to like imprint that much sort of power on these stories. And so let them deal with like the galactic Senate in the clone wars, com, uh, 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 cartoon and the Senate in the, um, bloodlines book about Leia, um, are like real political stories ripped out of the headlines. And they're, they're great. They're super well done. And they're told at a level that like even the kids who consume them can glean something, just something good from it. Not They're not trying to make any sort of statement like you should vote for this person. They're just trying to remind us it's like to appeal to the, our better angels, which is like cool. Well, that, it's that's, cool. that's sort of like sci-fi at its best, right? Like science fiction at its best gives you like these fantastical ideas and then reminds you of like it basically by using like allegory and metaphor kind of tells you a story about yourself. Yes, and, and and Star Wars is doing that the best across all of their IP right now, and that is most exhilar- most exemplified in their uh, comics. The specific, all of them, but specifically their monthly flagship comic, just called Star Wars. Nice. Well, then staying in Marvel for a minute, you you've got the Punisher on here. Marvel rebooted last year or a year and a half ago, two years ago, I guess, and the, the, they released a new Punisher run this year. That is just um, I don't know, a lot of people try to make the Punisher a thing, and the Punisher's like just this sort of vigilante badass, you know, and uh, in this new one, like the whole world of villains is like out to get the Punisher and he's just being Frank Castle, and it's just a blast to read. Again, not like, this one is is not important, really. It's just... It's so cool to see them like reboot, like reset a character without rebooting him, you know? Yeah. Just putting a new character in a new place and not giving you some new backstory. You know, they're rebooting everybody else and they're just like, oh, here's the Punisher. Uh, And he's on a subway platform and there's 15 villains. Go. And it's a blast. The Punisher's an odd character right now because, like, I, I don't know about you. Like, anytime I see a Punisher decal on the back of a truck, which happens a lot in Texas. It's usually also like it's usually not the only thing you see on the back of the truck. Usually there's like a, a gun rights sticker on there. There's yeah, probably I a MAGA sticker. About, you know what I mean? Like the, I, I feel think like about the, how none of those dudes have ever read a Punisher comic book. <laughs> yeah, the, the Punisher's definitely been reappropriated by like maybe not the most sympathetic people in society <laughs> today. It's kind of fun to watch them like Marvel deal with that though, and sort of write stories about that. Even in the Netflix series, a little bit. You know, there's like these moments. Yeah. Um, like he doesn't love having to, he doesn't like relish having to do what he has to do. Well, that, and that, I guess that's the thing that a lot of people miss about this character, which is that he's tortured and that he's, he's sort of like in his own hell. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. that he's, he's not, he's not somebody you're supposed to be necessarily rooting for. He's sort of a, a tragic figure, you know? And he's, he was trained to do one thing and he's only good at one thing. And it's the thing that he most not wants to not do. Right. 
And this is basically like, this is this is what happens to a person when they're consumed by rage and vengeance. And so, like, it's not necessarily like every. It, whereas, like Spider Man, who by the way is like the flagship character of the entire Marvel universe, is is a lot more like hopeful and bright eyed and has a very strict no killing policy. And and the Punisher is sort of the darker side of like what if what if everything about Spider Man wasn't true? You know, like what if what if this was the best we could yeah. do? And, and so a lot of people don't see that and they just see pun- the Punisher as sort of like this idealized like like gut like gun rights guy and like they don't they don't see like no this guy has like exchanged his like he, he lost his soul and that's why he feels like he can do this. You know like Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to the return of Wolverine, which is a similar character. Wolverine, uh-huh. every Wolverine comic famously starts with the line like, "I'm good at one. I'm the best. At, I'm, I'm. I'm. I can only do one thing, and I'm the best in the world at doing it." And he's always like just beating somebody up. Nice transition, by the way. Yeah, and so thank you. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I don't want to spend too much time on either of these. They're not like profound. I just really enjoyed them both because of these like these characters really trying to deal with something right now. It's a tough thing to try and deal with in like today's climate and so return of wolverine uh so like a year or two ago wolverine died the death of wolverine was like this whole series then there's sort of these investigation stories because everybody knows wolverine's coming back and that's one thing that marvel finally did right is they're like all right look wolverine's not dead forever like he's immortal right he's gonna come back we just don't know how and so they sort of explore all of that and they have these great stories that reveal how everyone was like tacitly connected to wolverine in the marvel universe and then this year he comes back and it's just this really interesting look at like him grappling with um dying to save humanity when humanity may be dying to kill itself. So yeah, that's Wolverine, this tortured character. And the Punisher's sort of the same way, just in, a, in more of a less cosmic, more neighborhood level. Definitely. Yeah, and then that brings us to your comic book, your last comic book, Deadly Class, which I did not get to read this year. Last item on the whole list. Yeah, Deadly Class is a series by, it, it's an image comic series. It's by Rick Remender and Wes Craig. Uh, this is a, they, they made a TV show adaptation on the Sci-Fi Network, and sadly, it was only canceled after one season. But I really loved the show. But the the basic concept of of the comic book is it's basically Harry Potter meets John Wick. And oh yeah, it is. Uh, which, by the way, is a pitch that should get anybody interested. But yeah, it's it, it follows. It's set in the 1980s, and it, it follows this this kid named Marcus who's recruited by a school for assassins, uh, and he's. He he is he's brought into the school and and it turns out I mean that things are things are a lot more complicated and deadly than he thought they would be and so the whole thing is it's it's incredibly it's crazy it is manic and it is that gives uh, me Umbrella Academy vibes it's uh, yeah it, it, it's not totally unlike Umbrella Academy it's a lot more um, I've not I've actually not read uh, the comic Umbrella Academy but I did I did watch the the Netflix show so it it is um so yeah it, it basically is about and and from all accounts by Rick Remender like basically this is his remembering of high school just with just adding like assassins you know like basically like this is exactly what high school was like except in this story I just to like heighten the drama I just made everybody a killer yeah and um and it's really good it's it's, it's a story about friendship it's a story about identity and uh, there's a lot of discuss there's there's a, there's an episode where or an episode sorry because i'm confused because the tv show the tv show again sadly was canceled but yeah, there's an issue where the main character marcus who works at a record store has like a two or three page argument about um the nature of punk rock and like which nice. which, which which punk rock artists are truly punk rock and which ones aren't and it's followed by uh him because he he has a hangover uh crapping his pants in the at, in the middle of work and so this is this is in a comic book <laughs> And so it's uh it's really good and every every time I think I know what it's gonna do it it makes a different choice and all the characters are really fully developed I think Rick Remender is one of the most talented writers 
out there doing comics. And I, if, if I had the power to resurrect one TV show that was canceled in 2019, it would be deadly class. And, um, and so the, the show is gone, but the comic remains. And so, um, so I'm going I'm to cling to that as best I can. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great, man. That brings us to the end of our list. How did we do that? JB? That was great. That felt, that felt like, I mean, it was just as long, but it felt like it was a little easier than in, in years past to get through. It moved uh, at a pretty steady clip. I felt, I feel like we, we were we prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that was fun. Uh, I hope that next year brings even more goodies. Um, and man, just send us your recommendations, guys. Seriously, that's uh, one of my favorite parts is we're sending this out into the world and then getting it back. So pass them along. I can't wait to read these comics and these books and listen to these records and watch these movies and TV shows. Oh, I'm already uh, listening to the albums that you recommended. This is already paying yeah. off for me. Cannot wait until you tell me about how you feel about Pup. I'm getting there. Um, but more importantly, the rest of that Orville Peck record. Guys, it is an absolute pleasure to record this and to exist in this world on Facebook and on Twitter and in Slack and through the podcast. And um, just thanks for another great year. And may your Christmas be merry and your, your holiday seasons be bright. Um, and may all of y'all feel a little bit all right. Amen. And we will be back. Season two of this podcast will begin uh, in less than a month, probably. And so we'll yeah. we, we'll be back Ooh. with album by album. We're going to talk about Greetings from Asbury Park very soon. And uh, feel free to join us for that discussion as we start season two in the fourth years of, of this podcast. So Wait, uh, question. Are we doing albums in release order or in alphabetical order? I think we got to go in release order. I think when you're talking oh, about Bruce Springsteen. Thank I God. Think, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I, think, I think release order matters a lot. Oh, I didn't realize that was a weight on my shoulders that I was carrying around. <laughs> oh, my bad. Yeah, I thought we talked about that. But yeah, we'll, we'll go in release order. So we'll go greetings, then wildly innocent, and you know, so on and so forth. Cool. Yeah. Um, what's the usually JB at the end of this? You you give us a like a, a hashtag or a phrase to to tweet out to signal oh. you finished. Uh, I forgot. Let's go hashtag bubble grunge. Bubble grunge. Okay. Hashtag bubble grunge. That's how we'll know if somebody finished the episode. That's right. If they tweet at us, hashtag bubble I cannot grunge. wait. I always get one of these like way earlier than I think I'm going to get, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. Like tomorrow uh, afternoon, you know, somebody's going to tweet at me like hashtag bubble grunge. I'm going to be like, how did you do it? How did you do it? <laughs> I want to know if somebody went on a road trip, was this sufficient for you? Like, did this get you all the way to, to your yeah. destination or did you? Are you there? Yeah. Are you sitting in the driveway of your, of your parents' house and thinking like, <laughs> I don't want to go inside. And so I'll use this podcast as an excuse to sit in my car for a few more minutes. Or does anybody like pause along the way to go listen to a record or something? Uh, that'd be great. That'd be cool if they did. Like, I wouldn't be upset at all. If somebody was like, I'm going to stop this podcast and go listen to the high women for a minute. Yeah, dude, you know? please. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, okay. Bubble grunge. That's the, that's the phrase. Hashtag bubble grunge. Hashtag Let bubble us grunge. Got to the end. All right. Well, like JB said, I'll just echo everything JB said. Thanks everybody for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Really looking forward to uh, going into getting into the albums, album by albums in uh, in 2020. Yeah, season I'm, I'm, two, if you will. The real way to explore songs by album. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be weird talking about like 10 or 11 songs per episode. That's gonna it's gonna yeah. feel like overload. Yeah, like it'll this. be good though. Yeah. All right, man. I guess I got nothing else to say. I don't either, man. I said everything that I've been trying to say all year. <laughs> well, like you said, I look forward to this like all year. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away that we're done. 
<laughs> yeah. This this morning I was kind of like, man, I've got a long day. I've got to work and then I got to go home and record a three hour podcast. I know. I've been hydrating all day just for this. I was drinking coffee way later than I usually do yeah. for this reason. But then you texted me right before lunch and you were like, dude, I'm just now listening to two of these records for the first time and they're the greatest thing I've heard all year. And I was like, I am so exhilarated and filled with life right now. <laughs> I am jacked. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and man. I went and listened to the song. You reminded me about uh, Maggie Rogers and Joseph and I went and listened to those records this afternoon. And I was just like, whew, man, it was such a good day. I was just smiling ear to ear all day long. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent all day like thinking about all the, all the stuff we were going to talk about today. And, uh, always a pleasure, JB. I would, I would do this. I would do this once a week if we had enough content and time. (laughs) Yeah. If I got paid to just consume (laughs) things, then yes, that would, that would work. But some weeks I don't make it through much. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, some some weeks it's a struggle just to record a thirty minute episode. Yeah, some weeks I'd be like, man, I re- I watched half an episode of Marvelous Miss Maisel and it was really good. <laughs> oh man, yeah. That's uh, what we besides that, about. I mostly just went to bed at seven thirty as soon as my kids went to bed because I was exhausted. <laughs> oh man. Oh, and also by the time this thing drops, JB will have seen episode nine. Ah, uh, yes. So super excited and about that. Cannot wait. And here, here's my here's my review. It was an incredible ending, and I loved it. I loved it so much. There were some choices that they made. That I wasn't sure about, but in the end, I realized those are way better choices than I would have made, and I was just thrilled to be a part of it. And that is my review of a movie I have not seen yet. Dude, 2019 is an amazing year. We we have the end of the Tony Stark 10-year Avenger saga and the end of the Skywalker saga. That's right. Inside the same eight-month period. That's incredible. It's a 40-year saga coming to an end. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Thrilled. All right. Well, everybody have a great Christmas, New Year's, holiday season, all the different things. You Hanukkah, like I, I don't know, like whatever. Everybody, if you if you celebrate nothing, I hope you just had some time off work that you enjoyed. Like, so, I, I wish peace and quiet for everyone. Yes, that's what I, I wish for everyone as well. <laughs> Except for those who fear peace and quiet. In which case, for you, I wish all the noise in the world. I wish for a block party right outside your bedroom window. That's so, right. Uh, all right. Well, everybody have a great rest of December, and we'll see everybody in January when we talk about Greetings from Missouri Park. JB, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. Enjoy everything about the next few weeks of your life. Absolutely. Love you all. Stay safe on your travels. We'll see you in the new year. All right. Bubble Grunge. Bubble Grunge. Bubble Grunge.